Hey, everybody. I wanted to give a quick disclaimer on episode six that you're about to listen to. I have my first round of technical difficulties with the mic that I've been using. It's got an internal compression on it. And my guest, Billy Weaver, has a real deep voice. So whenever he would get a little bit softer, this mic decided to bleep out a few of the words that he would say. There's about 90% of the conversation is fine and salvageable. But if you do hear it bleep out every now and then, now you know. Uh, Billy Weaver is an operations manager for a successful family-owned company called High Grade Materials that does ready-mix concrete and owns several rock and sand quarries all over Southern California. If you are interested in a job and you live in the Mojave Desert or Coachella Valley areas in Southern California and are looking for some well-paid, rewarding work to combat the increased cost of living that's going on in those areas, then go to highgradematerials.com. That's hi-gradematerials.com, and go get you a good job. Anyways, I hope you guys enjoy the episode just as much as I enjoyed this conversation. We've declared war on work as a society, all of us. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up. That no people on earth are so fearless or daring or determined. The world is not driven by greed. It's driven by envy. This is about as macro an environment as I've ever seen. Undercapitalized, the wrong people, bad market conditions. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. All right, everyone, welcome to the TEO podcast where we talk to, educate, and lead America's small business owners, managers, and anybody else willing to listen into the 21st century of business. I'm Taylor Lasseter. I am in Southern California right now, back in my hometown of Yucca Valley, and I got a special guest today, old family friend named Billy Weaver. Billy, how are you doing, man? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Your first podcast? Our first podcast, yes. Well, uh, we're going to get into uh, Billy's life. He's got a pretty interesting story to tell, and uh, he's now a successful, would you say, manager? Uh, operations manager. Operations manager of a, of a giant earth-moving company. A ready mix concrete and uh, rock and sand quarry. Yeah. There we go. What's the name of the company? High grade materials. High grade materials. Yeah. Are they are they based out of Yucca Valley? Or um, are they? They're a regional company, so they're based out of Asperia. So they have plants in the um, high desert, which is, would be the Lancaster area. Lancaster, Winter Valley, Asperia area, Lucerne Valley, Morongo Valley, which covers Yucca Valley, Twin and Palms, and also Coachella Valley, which is um, their plant there. Involved in that's awesome. 65 yeah. years they've been in business, family owned business. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, before we get into all that, I kind of want to start from the beginning. We talked about a little bit on the drive when you're taking me out to look at the rock quarry, but where where does your life start? All right, so um, let's see. Um, I was born in uh, I'm 58, I was born in 64. Uh, I have a, I'm the middle child of I have a younger sister and an older brother. And then an older sister. So I'm in the middle of four. We, uh, I was born in Oklahoma. Uh, my granddaddy was a sharecropper. We lived on a 40 acre farm out in, um, Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Uh, I remember then I was just my grandfather and my granny were there and my mother and my brother and older sister. My younger sister hadn't been born yet. And, um, my dad wasn't around. My dad was incarcerated. I'm not sure. I think it was like forgery or something like that. He's incarcerated. Um, I remember lived there until we were like five. 
five, six years old. And then my dad, um, my dad was released and came home. And that's the first time I kind of remember seeing him because I never knew him. So it was kind of odd having this man around. But I, I believe within four or five months of him coming home, we were stuffed in a little Corvair car. I don't know if you know what those are, but yeah. a family of six in a Corvair. <laughs> and we moved out here to Orange County, California. Did, uh, I mean, was there, how old were you when you were? So I was like five years old when I moved out here, five to six. Do you remember much about Oklahoma? Or oh did... yeah, we lived on a farm. It was incredible. It was, a, my granddad was a sharecropper. So he raised, um, you know, we raised vegetables there and corn. And my granny, um, she was, uh, she was into canning and we um, had a root cellar that she put all of her canned goods in. And we had, um. The house was pre-electric and pre-plumbing, but there was electric in the house. It was all exterior on the wall. Now that I'm in the trades, I understand what it is, but there, all the wire was exterior and, and on the sides. But we had no running water. We had an outhouse and we had a pump sink. Wow, okay. Was, I remember, it was, it was in the country. Was the living conditions a little better once you moved to Orange County? Um, no, I preferred there because Orange County it was a little bit. We'll get into it. it was a little more chaos. You know, we were, we moved out here. We were poor. We lived in a um, one bedroom apartment, family of six. I didn't work the night. It was gone. And it was home. There was a lot of drinking, a lot of disruption, a lot of arguing and fighting. Yeah. yeah, and there's no hiding in a one bedroom apartment. No, whatsoever. <laughs> um, so Orange County, you're. Five. How long did you were you in Orange County? In the I grew up. I grew up there. We first came into Santa Ana. We lived there for a minute, just with my grandparents. But we lived my life. I remember growing up with all Orange County. So we ended up in that one bedroom apartment for a while. My dad was a painting. My dad worked for a painting contractor, and he did side stuff. And that was always hustling, um, doing all stuff. He needed a lot of shady stuff. You know, he had a lot of friends that were in, doing shady stuff, and um, but they ended up. We ended up getting moving into a house, a larger home. I remember that, you know, and then uh, it was just, uh, you know, my dad was gone a lot, hung out at bars a lot, a lot of, a lot of carousing, you know, just, um, it was just really just a lot of families were dysfunctional. But I remember, you know, my being that my, it was days that we were, my dad was a, a, a very serious gambler. He gambled a lot, horses in Vegas all the time. And so my mom would, him would take off and sometimes it would just be my older sister who's only um four years older than me but would be left to pretty much take care of us mm-hmm. and you were saying that your mom was super young when she had all of you guys yeah so my mom and dad were married at uh, my mom was 14 and my dad was 16 by the time my mom was 20 22 she had all four children that's so crazy in a one bedroom apartment mm-hmm. so were you the oldest boy um, no, I was the youngest boy. Youngest was, boy. My sister's the oldest. And my brother is um, the name was him, and then there was myself, and then my younger sister. Okay. Now I'm assuming that that's part of the reason why you weren't the best student, and you got into a lot of trouble and stuff. Yeah. So it was. Um, there wasn't a lot of. My dad had zero. Looking back on it now, you know, I I even knew it then. But my dad, because I, I compared it to other my friends, you know. I remember, you know, we lived on, there was times where my dad would have jobs and was making money. Then there was times that we were on assistance, you know, welfare. And I grew up eating, uh, you know, the, getting the big block of welfare cheese. You know, I remember my mom buying, you know, 
know, a lot of our clothes at secondhand stores. And I just remember just being on, you know, going and um, trading in food stamps. And I knew that that was, uh, knew that there was other kids in my neighborhood that didn't do that, you know. Did, uh, did your sisters have trouble, like, adapting once you guys moved to Orange County? Um, no, it seemed like they didn't. You know, I, it was it was almost every man for himself in our house for a while. Uh, my sister, my little sister, she kind of just stayed to herself. Uh, my brother and I, we, we, we were tight and stuff. It, through, through grade school, um, I was more or less the um, troubled one. I, my dad and my brother had a really close relationship. Me and my dad didn't, we, we never hung out. We didn't do anything. My dad and I, uh, there was a lot of physical abuse from him. And, and it was actually a lot of physical abuse on my side from my mom. And later on in the story, well, I, I, can, I, I realized why that happened. But the bottom line was um, I, did, I just didn't do well in school. Um, I, you know, I, I grew up with my mom, you know, I, I knew the difference between my house and my friend's house. I went there and we could see their moms and dads cussing each other out or, or their dads, you know, grabbing their moms by the hair and slapping them or choking them. And I just grew up that. So what I did is I did the best not to hang out at my house. It seemed that my family didn't really need that. It's like, you know, Least amount of kids and amount need to deal with. It seemed like it was easier for them. You think it, so? It had to do more about having a less per, like one less person in the house than Correct. than they knew what was going on, and so they were trying to shelter you from what they. Um, no, I think that they just had their own. Looking back on it, my mom was just struggling to maintain herself too. Uh, you know, I give my mom a lot of credit for taking it out. Um, what was talking about later on, so, you know, they were married for sixty years. We were together all the way to the end. Yeah. But there was you know, a lot of infidelity, a lot of fighting, a lot of violence, a lot of physical, physical violence in, that, in my house. Mm-hmm. Was, I grew up with that. Yeah. Um, I acted out outside the house. I got in school. I didn't do good in school. I was fighting all the time. And uh, by the time I was, uh, you know, 10, 11 years old, I was truant all the time. I was just ditching school and hanging out with older crowd. And I came to a point where, Back then, there was truant officers, and I got picked up, and they brought me, they brought me to the jail. My mom had came and picked me up, and we were forward. My mom basically told me she couldn't control me, and the judge told her she she needs a you know, she needs a you know, big uh, responsibility for me, and then also there was going to be some financial repercussions from it. She says, "Well, I, we can't." Mm-hmm. Says, uh, you're asking me if your son's incorrigible, and she said, "Yeah." Well, then they put me into a boys' home. What did what did it feel like the very first time you went to jail? Well, um, it's one of those things where I had teachers, my mom, my dad, people telling me as a kid, "Hey, you keep getting in fights, you keep doing these things, you're gonna end up in jail." So it was like a self fulfilled prophecy, I guess. I finally go, "Okay, well, this is where I'm at." Finally, so now hmm. what part of this chapter is going to be? You know, and I remember being. I remember when my mom did that in the courtroom, it kind of bummed me out. I was pretty sad. And I remember her, um, you know, I remember asking her, no, mom, don't, you know, I don't, want, I don't want to go. And the deputies led me away. And I went to actually juvenile hall then. And I stayed in juvenile hall until they had me a placement home. And then they found me a placement home. And then in that placement home, I, I was there for maybe two weeks. And I ran from there. Oh, wow. So when I ran from there, um, you automatically get 
for you. And then when I got arrested uh, over, it was over at a friend's house and uh, they found me and they arrested me, took me to juvenile hall. And then when I was in juvenile hall, I was there waiting to go to court and my mom was coming to visit me. And I was uh, 12 at the time. And there was a, there was another inmate that was there that was older. He's like about 15 years old. And he was making a lot of sexual um, comments about my mom after the visit when we were at dinner that night. Guy was a bully. He was bullying everybody. He was older than you. Yeah, he was like sixteen, like four years older. He was a big guy. Now they served us on metal trays. When you're done at the end of the table, you go to the long table and you scrape all your food into the lot bucket when you're done. And I kind of paced it to where he would be on the other side of the slot bucket when we were doing that. And I took my tray and I slammed it in his head. What I didn't realize I did is. When I swung it at him, it was in an animal. Mm. So the sharp end of it, the cotton that laid his forehead open. What was pretty cool about it is um, um, it, he went down. I jumped on him and started swinging him because he's he's bigger than me. He gets up, he's going to beat me up. Mm-hmm. But what was cool about it is as soon as I went, he went down, I got on top of him. About three other kids jumped on him and started hitting him too. People that he did Oh, man. So the guy got to come up and say. Yeah. But the problem with that was... Um, I caught an assault case. Right. And now I'm going to be in juvenile hall. And now I'm going to, I think they gave me like a, like a nine month sentence. Did it all there in juvenile hall in Orange County. Mm-hmm. And then I got out. From that on, that point on, you know, it was just, it wasn't good. You know? So it was more like a, at that point you're in it and now it's like bragging. Well, yeah, it's it. It's probably it's also you're in that cycle. Mm-hmm. There's no way I'm going to be able to maintain probation after because probation, I'm going to have to go to school. I'm going to have to be home. Mm-hmm. My home life wasn't good. You know, I wasn't afraid of juvenile hall. I wasn't afraid of being on the streets because I got beat up by my mom at home. I mean, if you're getting beat up by your mom, what, what else can somebody else? I mean, that's your mom who's supposed to take care right. of you. Be afraid of you know. Yeah. And there was just a lot of, you know, my parents would always. My dad had a, a business partner that he was doing business with. It was actually a lightweight, lightly connected to a um, outside a lot motorcycle club. And I went out to Bakersfield. So I, my dad was in Vegas, and my mom, and, uh, mom had my mom and dad had me stay with them. And my my brothers and sisters were at the house, but my dad took me over to stay with him. And he lived in a city called Cyprus. Well, that weekend, we went out to Bakersfield, and we're out in Bakersfield and down to Oildale, which is a town outside of Bakersfield. And this house, there had people there. They were all, you know, like a bunch of bikers. And the son there was my age and he was actually pretty cool. And we had a, we had a little dirt track in the back and we were riding our motocross bikes on it and having a good time. And and um, he had a, remember he had a little bit of pot. So we were sitting behind the garage smoking pot where the, the men were all inside the garage. And we hear some arguing inside the garage. So we go over and we look through the window. And as I look through the, we look through the window, we see uh, three guys arguing. And actually they got to like a physical altercation and then it broke up. And another guy was cussing another guy out. They were coming, screaming, yelling at each other. And uh, one of the guys walked up to the side of the guy, and shot him in the side of the head. And I'm 12 years old when it happened. Holy crap. I'm sitting there. My buddy, my buddy, the guy, this kid I just met, 
you know, obviously used to this lifestyle. We sat down and we didn't want we didn't want to see us. And uh, remember what I remember about that was so crazy as hell. These guys did this like as if it was a normal thing for them. Mm-hmm. They shot this man in the head. I remember this man going down and I remember the side of his temple blood shooting out of it. And the one guy was yelling and screaming that the guy was getting blood all over the floor. That's about it. They actually went over and got a drain pan had oil in it, mm-hmm. tilted the guy's head sideways and laid his head on it. They rolled him up into a, into a piece of carpet in the truck, in the back of a truck. And I just didn't know what to think, you know. It wasn't it wasn't my dad's friend that had done it, but these were his friends. And right. um, then these guys just go back to being like normal guys, you know. And, and it was then that I just it was it was just being exposed to stuff like that, and then trying to be a normal kid. It just it just it was really confusing for me. Yeah, for you know? sure, it was real confusing. And I'm assuming like that was something you didn't talk about. No, ever. I don't know about that at all. Yeah. I've talked about it now and I've talked to my family about it. And, you know, there was times I brought it up. Of course, I don't know who those people were. I don't know what the address was. I would have no clue, who, you know, how this played out right. or what was going on. But it was just, I grew up in it and it just, it was, and I don't think my mom had the intentions of me living that way and those things happening. It just seemed like from that moment and going forward, my whole life, Taylor, seems like, been like terminal i suffer from terminal uniqueness it's like how do i get put in these situations and how does this stuff happen to me you know yeah but it jades me you know it jaded me it got to the point where i still felt like i you know that's not something that i wanted to go do but i understood that's what happens in life that these are the things that happen these are the consequences of life yeah and from that point on um i was in and out of juvenile hall multiple things assaults i did a lot of burglaries um a lot of stealing cars, to steal cars and um, sell them to chop shops. And at the same time, I had a group of friends that I skateboarded with, I surfed with, I acted normal with, who did none of the stuff that I did. Yeah, like I had two sets of friends that I did stuff with, and um, I didn't I didn't know how to not do anything else. This is just what I knew; it became my norm. But I never would get off of probation. I went in and out of boys' homes until I ended up in a was in a place called Los Pinos in, in Orange County, and I escaped from there. I was there for nine months, and I ran from there. Caught out the river at my friend's parents' house at the river, in Havasu. and then um, and from there I went to California Authority. Back to the boys' homes. What are those like? I don't think I've I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about what life is like in one of those boys' homes. Well, you know, some of them you have counselors in there that are pretty cool. You know. They were there for a reason, you know. There was always those counselors there that were. I could tell they were the type of people who brought home like stray dogs and, you know, a stranded kitten or whatever. They're they're always trying to make a difference in people's lives. And I mean, I remember counselors talking to me all the time, telling me, you know, you're, you know, you can change. You have the power within you. So there was a lot of good stuff. There was a lot of good in it. It was a reprieve from the life that I was living on the streets because at home there was just so much chaos, you know, and boys homes, I I learned how to play that game. I learned, I learned the structure of a boys home. I learned there was hierarchies, you know, there was, there was um, 
there was a was a, there was a system within that system that and kind of learned how to you know, became institutionalized. And um, there was, and it was very different. You know, when I would come home. I, there was there was no structure. See, in the boys' home, I I knew when I was going to wake up. I knew I was going to go to bed. I knew what we were going to have for dinner. You know, I knew what was going on. The only other person that was going to hit me there was going to be another inmate. You know, so that that I learned how to deal with that. You know, and find my on, on the at home. You just didn't know. It was just chaos all the time. Did your parents know that you were hanging around like you had your old skateboarder surfer friends and then you had this other group? Did they know about the other one? Yeah, they, they knew about them. Um, so there was a time some of the guys that hear this podcast will, you know, that I grew up with back in Florida some weeks out of my friend's 60th birthday and we were talking about this. Mm-hmm. My friend Mark Bosser was two years older than me. I looked up to this guy. I love this guy. He was the same as me, in and out of institutions all the time. And, um, well, I was uh, 15 at the time, and I was out. I was on parole. He just got out of California Authority. He was 18. And he was, he would, uh, I would go into my dad's room, and I would take my dad's 38 pistol and my dad's shotgun, and I would give it to him. over on my beach cruiser's house to his girlfriend's apartment. Him and this guy, John, who was older in his 20s, they were going doing robberies. They would bring me the gun back and um, get cash. He'd, he'd kick me down for it. Right. I put him back in my dad's safe because Mark was, he was, excuse me, he was a tight brother of mine. He was a Burmese, and I'd bring the guns back and put them back, and no one knew about it. Well, one night in um, Fullerton, I was at my Mark's girlfriend's house, Elizabeth, apartment. And they went to do a robbery. I bought the gun, though. They went to do a robbery. And I, they're not back. And all of a sudden, we hear sirens and helicopters. Well, they had robbed, not even a mile from her apartment complex, a Marie Callender's. Oh, man. Well, they were going in through the back with a mask on. A lady in an apartment complex was getting water out of her sink, saw two men go in the back, called the cops. When they came out, the cops were waiting for them. They got into a shootout with the cops. With your parent, with your dad. My dad's firearms, yeah. Oh, and John got, John got shot and killed. Oh, gosh. Remember, please. Mark got away. Mark ended up with, um, got away but got caught. And, uh, yeah, my life. He ended up doing about 16 years and getting out. That later, it's a real cool story. He ended up clean and sober and he ended up dying in a motorcycle accident. But, uh, yeah, there was, it was stuff like that, you know. And, and um, what was, Mark, Took the rap, you know. He even came to my, you know, he um, he mentioned my name. He said, "No, I took the guns from you know, stolen from the Weavers." Yeah, you know. But my parents knew that that didn't happen. They knew what I did. You know, so yeah, they were aware of mm-hmm. you know that I had that element. You know, that was that was hanging out with. Was there ever a, a moment or a certain time where you're robbing a car or something where you're like, "I'm gonna get busted." Like this is the line that I'm crossing right now. Um, there was lines. So here's how it was for me. Yeah, I've I've felt that a lot. I had that feeling sometimes, but it was always like, what are the? Excuse me. What is the? Um, what's the end result? I'm going to go to jail. Does he back to the structure that you kind yeah, of yeah to people that I know? Yeah, you know, and it's guys that are in there that have 
that I was just with not too long ago, we'd always tell each other, hey, see, you know, um, there's an old saying, you know, you're out of the gate by eight, you're in the spoon by noon. You know, the, where you get loaded, it's all about coming back. You know, mm-hmm. the recidivism rate is so high when you, when you become like that. And there's no support, you know, there's no nothing there's no support for me out there. You know, it wasn't my family going, Oh, Hey, look, let's do this. Let's try something different. You know, you know, my mom was a prescription drug problem. My dad was drinking and browsing and they weren't getting along and they were, you know, everybody had their own issues, you know, mm-hmm. and it was like every man, like I said, every man for himself. But yeah, there was many times, you know, but there was certain things, you know, I wasn't a, I tried to have scruples, you know, I wasn't one of them guys that, um, you know, uh, it was just, when I say I had scruples, I wasn't out to like, I wasn't a per, I wasn't, you know, going to go out and purse snatch somebody or something like that. You know, I, I didn't see that. I, I always did my best to, um, I was, I really ended up robbing drug dealers because I got into drugs. That kind of became my thing was robbing drug connections. And I figured that's where, you know, why am I going to go rob somebody for money just so I can go buy dope? Mm-hmm. Not just rob the drug dealer, you know? I would do is I'd stay outside. A lot of times it got so bad that, you know, even in my late teens to come out of YA and even when I went to prison, I'd get out. You know, there was some connections that would actually give me dope just so I wouldn't rob them or rob their customers. Cause sometimes I know what the dope house is. I just stay outside and watch the guys roll up to buy dope and I'd rob them. Yeah. You know, that's kind of what I did. When was the, when was it that you were tried as an adult and now you're going big boy jail? So the first time that ever happened was I was, um, I, uh, see for the first time I was going, I was in an, it was a California authority when I, so I was in, um, I was in Chino, ITS in Chino. I dabbed a rival gang member and that was my, cause I did, I, 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 I committed a lot of crimes on the street, but I was I, I was convicted of more crimes in prison than I was on the streets. Okay, you know, or, or brought up on charges. But I stabbed a rival gang member, and then I was sent to um, from TS. I was sent up to Preston, which is up in um, Ione, which is up in Northern California, and then from there, and there, an assault on a. Um, took me out to court and then I went to Tracy, which was a, at the time they called a gladiator school. So Tracy up in Northern California. And then I became a, um, I ended up with a prison number there. And then I had parole from there. Mm-hmm. When I got home, I was, uh, I think I was 23 at the time, 22 at the time. And then, it was a short time there that I, I got married, uh, had a kid. I did started, you know, trying to do life right, you know, and, and get a job and became a union carpenter and full time I was doing drugs and dealing drugs and working outside, but trying to be smart about it. Right. And then um, I started getting into uh, some uh, insurance um, scams where we were where we were stealing people. People were getting their vehicles stolen wanting their vehicle stolen and getting insurance money from it. We were taking the chopping them and selling them. Oh, wow. It's like some Grand Theft Auto game. Yeah, there was was that. Then there was a lot of um, different people who were 
there was a couple of different organizations that I was affiliated with that burnouts basically were we're taking in um like one guy wanted to, he was his bar was going under and he wanted insurance money for the bar so he we went ahead and burned his bar to the ground and he gave us money for the insurance right so it seems like like when you were younger you had a lot more like it was under your own fruition it was like you're doing no i guess you could call like small little little jobs felonies whatever and then it's like you graduated to some bigger stuff right did that did that happen like there was one incident that happened or was it like now i'm in over my head but this is the life right i was already that way for me because i was already uh, there was a few people who knew me who would come to me to be basically asking me you know i was um my name was given to if somebody wanted something done i would you know we would do that's what we would do we'd mm-hmm. take care of it then it got into the point where my drug addiction was started fueling most of it and Back then, in the early '80s, cocaine was going for thirty, forty thousand dollars a kilo. And what I found out is that there was a lot of middle and upper class guys selling cocaine in Newport, Huntington Beach, Costa Mesa, that lived in beautiful homes. You know, mm-hmm. um, had a lot of these things, and they were playing the game. They were slinging a lot of dope, big, big, you know, pounds of coke and kilos of coke, and but they weren't even armed. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what I started doing then is um, we started finding these guys that were, we were in the game. So we we found people that were doing it. And what I did is I had homegirls that would meet these guys and we would do small buys from them first, like do like a, an ounce, you know, an ounce of Coke from them. And then say, hey, this guy wants, to, and then I'd ask them, my home girls, when you go in the house, say, does he have a, you see, does he have a firearm sitting out? What, what's their house layout like? And then it got to the point where we would try to get them to, we would do a few buys to get their confidence. We basically did the same thing cops did. We did a reconnaissance on them. So we right. did some low level buys. And once we saw that they were, that they, we, they, they, they got comfortable with us, we come in, we buy like maybe a, you know, a quarter pound from them or whatever. We'd come up and we would see them and that good third house and I took a take inventory of what they got going on. This guy's sitting in a, in a condominium in Huntington Beach, you know, with, with you know a kilo of cocaine. He don't even have a firearm in the house. I'm a parolee at large. What an amateur. Right. And this guy, you know, <laughs> this guy's not gonna, you know, what's he gonna do? Huh. You know, and basically that's what we started doing. We started robbing connections. Wow. And then we got uh we started doing that. And I would just and I was really into Coke at the time, I was into heroin. That's where the so, money was, right. though. And we would, you know, that's where the money was at. It turned fast, you know. So you go and steal a, you know, you go rob the guy for a kilo of coke, and I could turn that thing. I knew somebody to buy it from me, and we'd be, you know, I don't, I would, and personally, I would live off that for a while, you know. Yeah. And then at that time, I was living on hotel rooms off of Beat uh, the Boulevard, and and uh, I'd already left my daughter's mother. I was running a mock, and then we had, um, then there was a robbery that we did, and I. When they had, you know, we we robbed the person and we took him from his house out to at a boathouse, to the boathouse where the drugs were at. And when we took him out to there, he would not um, he would have given up the. Well, there was there was a couple times, you know. I'll, I'll back up here a little bit. There was it got really sketchy there, you know. It got to the point where we were getting it was getting more violent. Um. And 
there was a time I, I remember when it was I, we were out of control is when you know we were we were doing a robbery and the guy didn't want to give up his, his dope girlfriend was sitting there in the house and there was a there was a baby in the house and my crime partner went over and grabbed the clock radio that was on the and then over by the uh, fish aquarium and dropped it into the fish aquarium, reached over and grabbed that baby out of the, out of that, um, out of the, you know, playpen. Yeah. And held that baby over the playpen, held that baby over that water. Basically said, look, we're, you know, stop here if you don't give it up. Right. And um, she gave it up. You know, he wasn't. Mm-hmm. And, I remember thinking to myself, first of all, we're, you know, this is what my life's come. This isn't really what I wanted to be. This is who I want to be. And this is getting crazy. And that this wasn't cool, you know. And I, I remember the look of that lady's face when we held her baby up there. And I haven't child, you know, and that's, it was, a, it was a bad deal. And what really pissed me off was that dude still wouldn't give up his dope. Yeah. He was ready to give up his the kid. Right. Yeah. And, and um, so... Fast forward, we went into, a, I did a robbery and we took the guy into the boathouse and he still wouldn't get it, get up. So we cut his Achilles, we killed his heels with the, with the pruning shears. Yeah. And we snipped his Achilles tail, heel with the pruning shear. And then my buddy shot him in the kneecap. He gave up the dope. Well, come to find out when you open up the safe, these guys were precious metal dealers too. So there was a lot of gold, silver. Oh in there. man. That's why you want to give it up. There was, there was the dope, there was money. Right. There was a lot of precious metals. There was a lot of money. Get it. I mean, there, there was probably right around sixty-five thousand dollars in cash, and probably close to hundred thousand dollars in dope. Wow! Count what the precious metals was. And this guy didn't want to give it up. So, the reason why we, uh, the reason why I forgot to tell you that the reason why we did this to the guy inside the house, there was another safe that had no dope in it. That his, his, his roommate opened up. There was child porn in there. In the safe. Wow. And that's what kind of flipped us out and, you know, pissed us off. And that's why we, when we took him out to the boathouse, we didn't have no, um, and we got to the point where I'm realizing I'm going to catch a hot one. And by, when I say hot one, I'm going to catch a murder on this pretty soon. Right. And I knew that that was a, a chance that, you know, I had to, that I was taking. And, um, so when that went down, we went out to Vegas and I don't even like Vegas. That's where we were at. And we we're out in Vegas. We were partying and, you know, we had a whole lot of cash, a whole lot of dope. We're in Vegas doing our thing. And my buddy's own girl got busted. Quarter gram of coke strip. And they brought her in there and told her, you know, hey, where do you get your coke? We don't care about that. We just want to know where you get the coke from. And she goes, well, I just want to tell you. Pause real quick. So we're in Vegas. Right. And so she got her in the um, um, Vegas Metro there and they're sweating her. She's telling her she's going to jail. She was custody of the kids and giving her that program, you know, and she says, hey, look, I know where these guys are. And they're holed up in a hotel room with a bunch of, a bunch of money. Um, back then, there was cell phones. There was pagers, right? I wasn't with these guys. I actually went and did my own thing. My pager was blowing up. And I went my friend back in Orange County. I told him, I said, what's going on? He asked me, where are you at? I told him, he says, well, Donnie's busted. They got, they got his old lady. They got him. They, they just walked in the room. And they know you. Your name's dropped. They're looking for you. So it took off and went back to Orange County. Uh, so I just went on the run to Orange County. And then I, I was, was out there for me and knew I was wanted. So I went ahead and um, called my uncle up in uh, 
in Oregon. That's my dad's brother. He, um, he lives on a, like, you know, like a hundred acres up there and outside of boring Oregon <laughs> and he grows wheat. So I roll up there and I hang out with him for a while and, and try to, you know, learn his trade. And he just wants me to, you know, lay low and take it easy. And so everything's going fine up there. And back to your farming roots. Yeah. Back to our <laughs> farming roots. I knew nothing about this. They're growing weed. So basically what I started doing for him is I started running, um, pounds of weed back to California and LA for him. Money back. I was a transfer for him back and forth. Well, he had a he had a crime partner. He had a business partner that he was involved with, and me and this guy didn't get along. His son, he was a couple years older than me, um, and uh, we just we just, me and this guy just never saw eye to eye. And uh, so we were all at a, a we were at a hotel, partying. Um, he disrespected me in front of a bunch of people, and and um, so we ended up getting in a, in a fight, and then he. I was getting the better of him, and then one of his buddies jumped in, so I ended up stabbing his buddy and stabbing him, and then I took off. Well, I had no ride home, and I called my uncle on the phone. I said, hey, look, look, you can't come back here. You screwed up. He's in the hospital. He's not going to die, but you know, got to do surgery on him, and uh, you can't be over here no more. It's going to be bring too much heat. So now I got to head back to Orange County, and I'm stuck at this um this bar and I have no, you know, maybe you know, four or five hundred dollars in my pocket. I don't even have a vehicle. You know? So I watched this uh, drunk come out of the back of the bar, over, and I, I crack him beside his head. He was trying to put the keys in the in the. This is this part right here is funny because he was trying to actually put the keys in his car. Right, and I wasn't thinking about stealing his car. He was having a hard time getting the key in the in the, in the lock. That's as simple as that. I walked over there and I said, hey, here, let me give you a hand. The guy got mad at me and, and spit at me. And that made me mad. I punched him. And then when he went down, his case and off his turn took off. So I drove to, uh, I drove to, there's a little town over there, um, Eugene, Oregon. And I hotel room in Eugene, Oregon in the stolen car. And the next morning, I got up and I went and got some breakfast and I was reading the paper and I was looking classified ads and I see this guy was selling a motorcycle there in Eugene, Oregon. So I drove over to him. Oh, and this car that I stole was in like a, uh, like a Z28 style car. Okay. It was, it's coming Z28. Quite a couple years old, but it's clean. The guy's house. And I said, hey, uh, you know, I to buy you interested by your bike and I take it for a test ride. He's like, well, when I tell you stuff like, this is my life. This is the story. Right? This is not who I am anymore. But the guy says, well, you know, I'd let you, but you know, my friend and somebody come by and they had a stolen car. I go, I'll leave my car here. My car's worth more than your bike. You know, I just want to test ride your bike. Mm -hmm. He goes, a friend of mine did that and then he took off on the guy's bike and it was his car was stolen. I go, man, well, I don't have to tell you here. I'm show you the registration. And I don't know if you would have said it, what he would have said if I would have showed Yeah. Maybe I couldn't find it. But I go, you want me to show you the registration? He's like, no, I trust you. He gave me his helmet. I hopped on his bike and I took off. And I'm heading into California. And I knew it was a matter of time before I got popped. This is, I knew this, this was all going to come to an end sooner yeah. or later. I don't want to go see my, you know, I want to go see a kid. He was just born, you know. Mm -hmm. 
I uh, was going through the town of Willows in California and I pulled up to a gas pump and I went to get gas. And as I was, I went, I go inside to get gas. I come out, took my, um, took the pump that my bike was parked at and was going over to fill up the truck. I told him, hey, that's my pump. I mean, he got into a physical altercation, got into a fight. And at that time, I've fought at the drop of a hat. Right? So I was moving out of line. I came over and made a big deal about it. And here I am wanted, and I'm acting like a fool. You know, you think, now looking back on it, you know, I was never very good at what I did. I should have been just very laid back about all this, you know, but this was, it, it happened the way it was supposed to happen. So me and this guy get into a fight, and I smash this guy with the, with the, um, the nozzle of the, of the gas pump. And uh, we, I get back on my bike and I take off. And I didn't end up getting gas. I was getting close to E. And I'm going down the freeway and I see cop passed me on the five, five freeway. I'm heading towards Sacramento. A cop passed me on the freeway and it's getting towards the evening. He passes me and I watch in my mirror. I see him go across the center divider and come back behind me. Gets up closer, getting to traffic. And it was a sheriff lit me up and then i just uh, this is like a this was a crotch rocket bike it was like a, a ninja 900 or something so i just tucked it and just throttled it took off and now i'm on never chasing me not chasing me and and every, you don't have a lot of gas i don't have a lot of fuel but it's a bike so i'm thinking if i make it to sacramento i see the lights it's getting dark i see the lights of sacramento in the distance i'm thinking if i can get to sacramento and ditch this bike i could run and maybe hide right, right? And every intersection every off ramp i'm passing there's either chp, CHP or, or a sheriff on there waiting for me and I'm just, this is, this sucks. So I'm just tucked and I'm flying as fast as I can. And these, 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 that's back when they had five liter Mustang CHPs and they were, they weren't even keeping up with me. I was well over 100, 120 miles an hour, probably up to 140. And I was just going for it. I'm going on one extreme on, 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 on the classes. And we came out on their side, it lit up like broad daylight. Look up and there's a helicopter to something happened with me. I'm like, man, this is not good. This is not good. Bike sputtered a little while later. I reached down and on the tank, there's this big old uh, knob on there for reserve. So I hit reserve knowing that's going to give me probably half a gallon or a gallon. But at that speed, you're eating that stuff up. Right. So a little further up the way, I get off. Oh, there's these rice fields everywhere is where it is. So I dump the bike. I get ahead of him. But where I go over, the, the, the helicopter can't get there because there's power lines. So he's like over about a mile away from me, but still trying to pay, pace with me. I drop the bike in the water and get up in this little canal and the canal is actually flowing so i'm thinking man i've seen this on movies you know i'll just float in this water and get down to you know a mile two miles down the river or whatever and these people won't see me you know so i get up out of there and i climb up out of the, out of the thing myself in the bushes in the butt and i can hear the cars and the trucks because they had off-road uh, they had four-wheel drive trucks out there and i hear the dogs barking and and next thing you know they pull up close to me and then the dogs barking and they're they're right on me and then they're like right by me and then this big old corn fed and top come pulling up the shotgun and told me don't move, I'll blow your head off and it's resting. Oh, so that one I'm I'm assuming they were chasing you because of the culmination of things that you had right. had done that you hadn't been arrested for yet. Right. They're only chasing me right now. All, only thing they know about me right now is I sold them that, that there's a stolen probably that's a stolen motorcycle they ran the plate mm-hmm. or assault at the gas station. And they don't know nothing else about it. Yeah. And they don't go, then I get to the station. And back then, they don't have like, here's they have now. They had NCIC. So it took them three days to find out who it was. But I went in there and told them, I have a friend of mine who's never been in trouble. He's actually a great friend of mine. He's a Jewish friend of mine. He's, they were really good friends. So 
a great guy. We have same dark uh, brown eyes right here, and, but I know his everything about him, and I always use his name to get out, you know. And I told him who I was, and they're, and they're like, hey, I can't believe a guy with all these tattoos has never had a police record. I'm like, oh, I don't. I just like tattoos. So I'm in this little jail in Gwynn County, California, city of Willows. And um, finally, uh, like three days later, I'm sitting there breakfast, and Top walks up to the door and goes, Mr. Weaver, and I don't say nothing. And I pretend like, you know, I'm, the meeting's looking for a reaction. I don't say nothing. Tosses the paper into me. And the newspaper had my picture on there, and they had them, my, I mean, that I was identified, and I was wanted back in for a, a kidnap. So they did for me in Orange County. Okay. So I took that guy from that house out to the garage. And that's called, that's, that was kidnapping. That's kidnapping. He's only like maybe 300 feet. Well, we took him to the, to the boathouse. And then mayhem, you know, for what we did to his Achilles attendant and shooting him in the knee. My crime partners were already going to court. They, they caught the plea and got like a 10 year sentence. And I took it to court thinking I could. How are these guys going to testify against me? Because they're criminals too. And I took it to court and I'm losing and getting a 75 year sentence. Holy crap. Yeah, so now I'm stuck in prison for, I'll, I'll do 75 years with no life sentence. But still, seventy-five years. Was that uh, was that Folsom? No, that well, I went to Folsom from there, and from Folsom with the Corcoran, and from Corcoran, I went to Pelican Bay. Okay. And um, and in prison, I was just you know it was one of the same thing in prison. It was just you know a lot of violence in there, and mm-hmm. and um, I I I never was um, val- I never. The prison validated me as a gang member. I never, I never, Shamrock on me and never became a gang member. Right. A lot of them were my friends. Um, I would uh, put in work for them. There was people in my in prison that, in the area of the prison that I was in that were no good, that were dirty, whether they were child molesters, rats, or whatever. I, I, I um, a child molester or a rat, I had no problem taking care of them. And if they were, uh, um, that they had their name in, in the hat. In other words, when your name's in the hat, that means you're you're as a gang member, as a gang, a, the gang has put your name in the hat because they've marked you for um, assault or death, right? Like green light, I think. Green it's light, like, exactly. Yeah. Get a green light on you. And I didn't always take every green light because sometimes those were personal beefs and I didn't want to get involved in them, but I picked and chose what I what I would raise my hand for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that's kind of where I how I walked my line in there. Was anybody ever like, was there any specific gang that was like, we want you like full time? We want you. Oh, yeah. There's you're not, you're not the, paid call anymore. We want right. you in. And yeah. So there was, you know, at the time, you know, there, I was at a YA. So at a YA, we, we started a gang star there at the time that I was at YA. It's called NLR, which is the Nazi Lowriders, which ended up being kind of um, grandfathered in to the, um, to the, uh, to the, uh, the mm-hmm. and then there, then later on, there became other. After I got out of prison, you know, there was the P9 crew and all that stuff came. That was years after me. But, you know, the main prison, the main gangs in there was the Aryan Brotherhoods for the whites, the, the um, Mexican Mafia for the, for the Southern Mexicans, Nostra um, Familia, which is the Northern structure for the Northern Mexicans, and GF, which is the Black Gorilla family. And they were all, they were all rivals. So you had... Aryan Brotherhood and the Southern Mexicans, the Mexican Mafia, we we were allies and our sworn enemies. 
most of them like the northern Mexicans. It's kind of it's a it's really crazy how that works out. Because yeah. I I remember you know that uh, the whole thing to me was just uh, you know trying to figure the whole thing out you know. But um, it, that yeah, happened. Culture yeah, within just, the prison system. Yeah, but you learned that back in you know YA, you know, yeah. first time because I grew up. I grew up in Fortune. I grew up with the color Calles, the street. I grew up in the barrios, right? And I or around the barrios. I had a lot of Spanish with my friends, and we'll get on later because it becomes very um, ironic later on, you mm-hmm. know. But um, as a, as a, you know, I grew up with a lot of Spanish as friends, and then when I got to the uh, California Youth Authority, when I got to Northern California. I saw that there was Hispanics hanging out with blacks and I, I even asked um I remember there was a guy that I knew from YA down in Southern California who's from White Fence and I asked him I said hey what's up with those what's up with your people out there kicking it and smoking cigarettes with those black guys out there and he says oh those aren't my people those are northern Mexicans those are busters no disrespect out here didn't he because that was a whole different life um but um yeah northern Hispanics and, and blacks got along and southern Mexicans and whites got along they were allies like I told you earlier, for California being a very liberal state, it's probably the far longest one of the most violent prison systems there is, and it's even segregated. You do not, they do, they do not cross uh, race you here. You you sell with your own race. How long did it take for the prison system to get on with that to figure out, hey, we can't we can't be putting them together because they're just going to kill each other? Well, that they knew that for a long time, and they did it for a while. So in in, in Corcoran, when I was in Corcoran, they what they did is they put us. In what they call SU program, security housing unit. I came out of New Folsom. I went from Old Folsom to New Folsom. And then in the late 80s, they put me over in Corcoran. Um, mid to late 80s, they put me over in Corcoran in the SHU program, security housing unit. And they were putting us on the yard, all races on the yards together, and we were just killing each other. It was awesome. It was a war. Someone was getting shot every day. Matter of fact, they were they were staging them. They were setting it up. The cops were. It's, it's, you, there's There's shows about it everybody knows it yeah um and i was there during that time during the 80s i was there during the time tate got shot when everything went down but it got to the point where they started doing modified yards where they would only let hispanics southern hispanics and whites on the yards together you know and northern mexicans and blacks on the yards so they started segregating them i I had so many um i had so many assaults on my i I'd end up with a celly that was maybe no good, or he had a, you know, he had a rat jacket, or he was a, um, you know, an informant or whatever. I just didn't, I just didn't play well with others in there unless I knew the people from, from being in YA or, and I knew they were solid. I didn't want to be a cell with them. So as soon as they got in there, if I got moved in their cell or they got in my cell, we were, I was bombing on them right away. I was throwing, you know, we're going at them. Didn't mean I had to stab or kill them. It just means I was going to bomb on there to separate us. Right. So it got to the point where I was in a single cell status. I, I wasn't allowed any other cellies. I was in a single cell status walk alone yard. But what's f- funny is, you know, in one year on uh, me being in single cell status walk alone, which means walk alone, I'm not allowed on my exercise yard with nobody but myself. Walk alone. I couldn't be with nobody else. I had probably 40 something years. So you got to figure there's 52 months, 52 weeks in a year. I had over 40 either cell fights or yard fights. I'm single cell status walk alone. So that means that they were setting it up. They were opening the, right. open the cell and they're putting somebody in my door. In my, and, and a lot of times they're doing it, one, to see the fights because they're placing bets on to see who can who can win. Um, and then other times they're doing it um, because they don't like somebody. They know that, that they don't like this guy. They're going to put him in a weaver's cell because weaver's going to take off on him. You know? right. Or we're going to drop him in a weaver's yard. Or there's guys, there are cops there that didn't like me that would set me up. 
It wasn't just me. I wasn't that, you know, sought after. It was, it, they did that with everybody, you know, during that time, there was a lot of us that they did that with. Were you keeping in contact with your family? Yeah, so my daughter's mother would write to me, my friend, uh, my, my friends, and my one friend that I told you, Kenny, who I knew all his information, he would write to me, I wrote to my daughter, and I'd write to my family members, yeah, I, you know, I would. I didn't like visits, I didn't want visits, you know, I didn't want that, I didn't want that. Yeah. Because it was, uh, it's just, it was tough, I just didn't want to deal with that, you know, I didn't want to go sit behind a glass and talk to somebody, you know. Yeah, so you said 75 to life. Right. So how did you? So what had happened was when I was incarcerated, I went back to court. There was a juror's misconduct on one of my trials, uh, on my trial. Basically, there was a newspaper was found inside the, the juror's room. And the bailiff brought this to the judge's attention, brought this to my attorney's attention. My attorney raised his hand and said, hey, I objected. Um, I want to uh, ask for a mistrial. He didn't, uh, judge noted it, but said, we're not going to. Like honor it. Yeah. But basically we'll note it, but, but we're going to proceed with this trial. So what happened is later on, after being incarcerated, being down 10 years, they come and they said, Hey, you have a, um, you have a, you're going back to court. You're getting a new trial. So, um, I'm going to court and. I'm down in Orange County, and my my goal was I knew I was going to die. I was probably going to never die because I got to remember I, I'm in a, I've lost all my good time, so I'm going to knock it out. I'm not going to I'm not going to be alive enough long to get my company back. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to do. If I'm max, I'm going to do. Let me enter. Tell I'm an old man. So I wanted to stay down in Orange County so I could see my family and see my daughter. So what I started doing was every day they were putting me in the same van. And they were taking my, I was going to um, take the van seat. I was uh, busting into it and taking this piece of metal off the van seat. I got him getting this piece of metal and took a piece it and put it, took it back to the um, cell with me and sharpened it up. And my goal was, raises the sounds. When I'm in court, I'm ankled and waist chained. But what I want to do is I'm going to assault my attorney in court. I'm this public, I have this state appointed attorney. And I'm not going to stab him in court. I'm assaulting. Did you not like him, or was it just that was just your... just because here, if I stab this guy in the courtroom in front of the judge, they're going to give me a new trial, right? Um, they're going to they're going to they're going to charge me home, and I could fight that case probably ten years if I'm lucky. That means I get to stay in Orange County and not in Corcoran or Pelican Bay, right? You know I mean, and I can be down there seeing my family and be have a little bit more movement than being just sitting on a shelf mm-hmm. collecting dust. So that was my thinking, and. Um, they, uh, so, you know, as far as I'm concerned, this is a God thing. They can look back on this with God in his hands on me the whole time. And I wasn't getting all Christianized, but I, I, I've always been a Christian, even though people are going to listen and say, that's not how you're right. That's not how Christian acts. That's supposed to, but, um, that's just, that's, that's who I was. And, um, but I believe in God, you know, and, and I, and I, I look back on it and then I wasn't asking God for anything. I didn't ask for anything. You know, I didn't, wasn't praying about nothing. I had people praying for me, people telling me, I had a guard that used to always come to me and tell me, Hey, I read your letters that you write to your daughter. I read the letters that you write to your family. And it says me and my family pray for you all the time. You're not the person you're, you're in here for what you've done. Your prison record doesn't reflect in the heart that you have. I think I, God's got a plan for you. 
and say, well, this is my plan that I don't want nothing to do with your God. You know what I mean? And I even told that guard, you can pray all you want, but don't, 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 don't beat yourself. This, you ever catch, I ever catch you slipping and that door opens, I'm going to act on it. You know that, right? And, uh, so going forward, uh, this attorney, man was a stab in McCord. And I was back, I got that, it, there was no way I was going to kill this guy. I just wanted to puncture him enough to where it was going to draw blood and make a scene. Because even if you, you try to hit in the neck or anything, even if you can't kill the person, they're still going to eat you for assault. Right. Intent, you know? Yeah. And, um, so he, uh, right when I was ready to, to like within a week, he was going to plan on doing this, comes to my cell and says, hey, I got a, you got a, um, you got a deal I think you're going to like. I'm thinking, okay, well, what do they do? They drop a, drop one of the charges and, or, you know, maybe I'm only going to get like 60 years or whatever. What, right. What's the deal? And he goes, they're going to drop the kid now, give you a residential armed robbery, give you assault, give you, drop you assault. We're going to run for clearance at the time you're doing right now. You'll be out in like six months. Was there new legislation that came no, down? No, it's just because it- what happened was when we went with the court, the judge told the attorney, this was, this is what my attorney told me. I don't know if this is what the judge said, but this was his words. This was one form of low-life scum robbing from another form of low-life scum, but I don't want to try this case. I don't want to spend the time. I don't want to spend the money. You guys go make a deal. I wonder if the child porn thing came out. And- you know, that's that that part of it didn't, you know, it was never even brought in from court. It wasn't allowed to. Right. But um, they, he, they basically, that's what they said. I mean, they know. They know it would happen. They know it was there, but the the, the juror was never able. Right. The juror, they were able to it had to been a different right. case. Yeah. So they just basically said to him, "This is this is what we're doing. Wow. This is what we're going to do." And I was out. And, and what's crazy is I go from that. So now I'm going back, and my life was geared towards I'm going to be in here. And all of a sudden now I'm in that cell. He tells me that I need a weapon in my cell that'll get me a twenty five a life if I even get out with that weapon in my cell. Yeah. You know, I flushed that thing, you know, and mm-hmm. now I'm going back. They sent me back to Corcoran at the time. And I was, I was in Corcoran for the city back over to the Bay. Mm-hmm. You know, there was different people in there, you know, giving me different advice on it. But you know, a lot of the good brothers who, you know, cared about me said, dude, you hit the lottery and you need to go out there and I don't care if you're flipping burgers or whatever you do, you need to live a life. You know, and you got a chance to do this again. And so I, um, I remember the day day before I paroled, I'm on my yard playing handball by myself. And they popped the door and they sent two BGF members on my yard. Instantly fighting. Um, we didn't get shot with the nine millimeters. I got shot with the batons, but you know, I was on the yard many times when people were shot with the nine millimeter and, yeah. with, and with the, they do a mini 14 and they do HK 94. But, um, I have uh, scars on my head. I got scars on my shins from what they do. They shoot these wooden block guns down. And they don't have to do that. That's a warning shot. They don't have to do that. They can shoot you because you sign a policy before you go to the yard saying that the first shot will be for effect. But they put two enemies out of my yard and we went to town on each other. And we started throwing bombs and they shot blocks at us. And if they went down, I go down. So they went down and I went down. We all went down. And, and then the next day, I was on a train and a Greyhound bus heading back to Southern California. Was there like a level of restraint that you were like, I'm going to defend myself, but I can't, I can't do anything more than that. Well, in because the fight? It, yeah. No, in the fight, I'm always, I'm all, I'm throwing till I can't throw no more. I'm throwing it. 
and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm waiting for that thing to pierce my shoulder blades all the time. I mean, it's, it's, it's not because I'm a killer, I'm a tough guy, whatever. It's just you, you're, it's ingrained in you. You don't, yeah. you don't go down because you're on that yard with multiple people, and and when you're on the yard with other people at the time, some of your own, your own race are on that yard, and seeing someone sees you go down, while someone else is still getting hit, you know, you, you, you can really get what what they call washed up from that. You know, what I mean, you get a you get a jacket put on you and that's just not, it's just not, it's, and like I said, it's not, it's not a, because I was a tough guy. It's just because that's how I was. That's yeah, just my just level. Of life. That's just how it was. I was there to survive. Um, yeah. So that's how the system works is that the next thing you know, I'm on prison. I'm on, um, I'm sitting with two uh, correctional officers and waiting and they hand me my, my gate money down the train to the train, to the bus station, to a bus station, to, I'm dropped off. Now, mind you, I've been incarcerated for 10 years, roughly that time, the exact time was, but 10 years I got uh, a heroin habit that I haven't, you know, that's been sitting dormant, you know, um, and I'm dropped off in Grand Central Station in, in Los Angeles where there's nothing but prostitutes, drugs, dealers, and everything all around there just dropped mm-hmm. back in. That's why the recidivism is so high. Yeah. Um, I end up in Orange County and I end up... Um, Within a week, I was slamming dope again, and it, I I didn't want to. You know, I actually did. I wanted to do something different. I remember I was chipping. At the time, I went to the parole office, and they I got I gave them a clean, and it was cool. And then my parole officer says, "Well, we're switching parole officers on you." So I kind of had like this little two week stagnant, and I was getting loaded again. And I was in Buddy's garage in Anaheim, and I opened the newspaper. Like I've always read newspapers, and I'm reading the um, help wanted ads, and I saw. In and Out Hamburger was hiring. Um, this towing company was hiring in, uh, in Fullerton and Brea, and that's the area I'm from, Fullerton. So I went over. I applied at the towing company. I walked in there. Um, my I'd already got my driver's license. My driving record's break, so I would have a ticket, and you know, we're driving. <laughs> they said, "Have you been convicted of a felony in the last seven years?" And I wasn't. No. Right, Nine years right. into it, right? So I wrote yeah. down no. And I had a long sleeve shirt on. I had my hair greased back. I my long sleeve shirt on, so all my sleeves tattoos were covered. My neck tattoos were covered, and I went in there and gave them my information. It's always time to be cooler than a tow truck. I knew concrete, knew concrete at the time, but I didn't have no tools. My parents were living in, in Florida. Nobody living in there. My daughter's mother was letting me live on their couch, and I went in and applied to the towing company. And then I went over to In-N-Out Hamburger, and I remember asking the kid there, hey, do they let you guys eat here? You know, they eat food. Because I, I liked In-N-Out Hamburgers. And I said, well, he says, yeah, you can eat food here. You know, you can even take a burger home, you know. So I'm thinking, I'll, eat, I'll live on those for a while and just try to, you know, I'm not going to do dope. I'm going to try this working thing. I wasn't praying about it. I wasn't doing none of that stuff. I was just going to try to do the right thing mm-hmm. stay away from the people. And In-N-Out called and said, hey, we want you. I hadn't heard from um, Home Depot yet, so I was going to go take this physical or whatever, go do something for in and out And then, excuse me, the um, the Phillips Towing Company called me. That's really the job I wanted. And I go there, and when I went to go there to apply, there was this really pretty brunette girl, beautiful brown eyes. And I just remember, man, this girl's gorgeous, right? Little, just a little thing. And, uh, and I was, she was really sweet, and, and the place just seemed cool, and everybody had a good vibe there. And they called me and said, hey, we want you to come to work for us. 
So I went, I, well, I went ahead and took that job. Been working there for a while and uh, things weren't cool between my daughters, uh, mom and me, and I needed to be out of there. And I was basically living in a, in a car that I was able to come up on. And that's a whole nother, that's another story, but I ended up with a vehicle um, and I, um, by ill-gotten gains, but I, I was mine. It, it became mine. I ended up with the pink slip of it. It was somebody who owed somebody something from inside, mm-hmm. and I went and collected what they needed, and my payoff was that car. Okay. Right? So, I ended up with that car, and I was sleeping in my car. I was living in the streets and waiting for my first paycheck. Never pulled a, um, not that I wouldn't, not that I'm against it, but I never even went down and got on you know, assistance because of the parolee, they'll let you get, you get on welfare like that. Right. I didn't do none of that. And I was, uh, the, the towing company, they had a, they had a driver's room back there that they, it was a brand new facility too. They had a driver's room. that's like an apartment, master pad. The drivers could stay there when they're on call 24 hours or they could take their truck home. Most of the guys chose to just take their truck home mm-hmm. or drive their personal vehicle to the yard when they got a late call to go do it. I said, Hey, what's the chances of me staying in there? They said, and I said, I told, I told all the drivers, Hey, I'll take all your calls. You know, night calls because I was all about it. I wanted yeah. to learn this thing. And um, so the the girl who was running the thing, her brother owned it, and that was Melissa. You know Melissa. Yeah. And um, so, Melissa was engaged to a Santa Ana cop at the time. Oh goodness, <laughs> the irony. <laughs> and um, this girl was really cool to me. You know, she was buying me food. She knew my situation. You know, and the first Christmas there it was like I was only there for like three months and. She had a bunch of toys left over from this campaign they ran for kids and said, hey, I got some for you to wrap for your daughter because I didn't have no money. I was making dollars an hour, I think. And I was like, out to me, it was a lot of money. I was excited about it. Yeah. I was uh, staying in that place and she would do my laundry, you know, and she was kind of really talking to me a lot, you know, and trying to, and um, she'll listen to this sooner or later, but she'll, she'll won't argue this because we, we all talk about it. You know, she was, I basically, I, I, I felt the vibe. I knew she was in it. What was crazy is that one, I was towing and I was working with sheriffs every day. I was doing impounds. Did they know you? They didn't. And they kind of freaked out on the, on the, on the Davison's, which is Melissa and her brother with this Davison. Right. Oh, they said, Hey, what's up with this parolee dude? You know, but we became cool. Yeah. It's hard for him. I went out there and I did everything they asked me to do. And matter of fact, I earned a lot, and a lot of a lot of fire, firemen on the accidents. They matter of fact, they would request me. You know, they would ask me to come to their to their. Um, they would bring some Billy out here, you know. And um, so Melissa had been talking to me, and I could tell what was going on. And she was buying me um, sandwiches and food, and living in that back room. She's doing my laundry and the fat. I finally told her, I said, "Look, um, matter of fact, we all." They asked me if I wanted to go with her and her niece and nephew, which were my daughter's age, to a, to a movie, and we all went, you know. And then that night, I told her, I said, "Hey, I may be reading this wrong, but I just want to tell you flat out, um, I need a girlfriend like I need a hole in my head. Like, all I'm trying to do is stay out of prison, girl. And you're, I'm in for a wreck with you because things don't go good between me and you. I'll lose my job." Also, if your boyfriend finds out, he's a cop, he'll get me parole violated. I go, this is a no-win situation for me. It's a bad deal. She just laughs. She says, no, that's not going to happen. She broke up with her boyfriend. 
Um, we uh, ended up moving into her brother's house with her brother and boss. I was there in Florida. I was living a life that I never thought I'd ever be able to live. You know, everything was good. I was clean and sober. I was working. Old apartment. So um, they didn't even know I was on parole because I never told them. What had happened was one night, I, well, this is fast forward before we moved into each other, or go back a little bit. Before we moved into each other, I was back in Fullerton one night. And there was a cop there that saw me at the gas station. That was friends. Of Detective McDonald that got shot. Also, returned and shot and killed the guy that I gave the gun to many years ago, right? From that first. Yeah, from uh, that robbery a long time ago. And he's like, What are you doing out of prison? I thought you were were dead, or I thought you were never never getting out. He didn't like me. Bottom line is, um, he ran up through my car, um, went ahead and and, and arrested me, and took me in, and said that I was in um, a known. drug area which was it was a gas station which is basically you could say that for any gas station right exactly (laughs) and i'm on parole and at the time you can't even back nowadays it's a little different back then it was very strict and i was on what they call a ssu parole i was on high-risk parole i came out of a security housing unit with you know quote unquote gang affiliation you know and plus your sentence was like right. 70 to life right and, and a lot of violence yeah. in the prison you know and then i had this issue with the cops foreign cops but he arrested me. So now listen, everybody's trying to find me. They're paging my pager and I'm not showing up for work. They don't know where I'm at. And and then my parole officer who was really close to the female. She came to my, she came to Fullerton jail and picked me out. See, technically, if you come in contact with the police, you're going straight back to prison and you have to have a parole hearing. Yeah. And you can either get released or get violated for an automatic year. But she said, no, nah, Billy, that's bull crap. I got your back. She actually came to the office. Phillips towing took me there. And explain to them. And then they're listening her brother, like, well, wait a minute, we didn't even know you're on parole. She's like, Billy, you never told me you're parole. Well, they never asked, <laughs> you know? And then I said, actually, and then when we moved in with her, he came to the house and then sat Melissa down with another parole agent and said, look, we have to tell you right now, this is, we're going to show you a C file, which is my central file. We're going to show you the person, the person that you're living with. We're not saying that you shouldn't live with Billy. We're not saying that you shouldn't love him, be a relationship with him, employ him, whatever. We have a, and they would never do this nowadays. Mm-hmm. But we have a responsibility for you to understand that if he violates his parole or we feel like he's doing the things that he used to do, you understand your house will be like, um, there will be a SWAT team coming through here. It'll be, it'll be bad, bad news. It's yeah. a bad thing, right? And um, so they sat her down and read of the right act and, Scare her away. You know, we're, Crazy. We're married a year later. <laughs> That's nuts, man. Yeah. You know, it's kind of interesting hearing you talk about all this stuff because it's like it's the structure that you long for when you're, as you're going through the system. Yeah. Like it was the structure all along that you. I have to have that. I'm wired to self destruct because I have that in me. I'm, I'm ADD, whatever you call it, OCDM, all those things, right? Whatever D's you can put in there, that's me. All right. Um, it took me a long time to learn that. You know, there's things that set me off. You know, there's, there's um, I had to learn what those triggers were. You know, it took me a long time. I read a lot when I was in prison. I learned a lot about myself, but still I had to apply it when I got out. You know, we've talked earlier, you know, I wasn't, you don't want to blame everything on my mom and dad, right? But they were a huge part of the reason I ended up where I ended up. 
But there came a point where I had accountability in my life and you're not always responsible for what happens to you, but what you are responsible for is how you react to it. Mm -hmm. I have personally have never been arrested and put in the back of a car for nothing that I was not guilty of. I was always guilty, always. And I was, if I wasn't guilty of that, I was always guilty of something closely related to it. Right. Um, I'm, there's a lot of things that happened to me in prison by the guards in there that were not well, sure, but you know what? I shouldn't have been in prison, you know? And those guys are broken in there, too. They're spending most of their days with the inmates, you know what I mean? Yeah, I can't even imagine being right. in prison. I would never life. want to do that. And yeah. well, what's funny is I get out, is I end up working closely with cops, you know? And I I became, I became had friendships with these guys. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was unbelievable. You know, it was crazy how that worked. And it was accountability. I need accountability in my life. The job gave me structure, a relationship, a relationship positive and, and healthy relationship gave me structure. And I never had that, you know, Melissa's family, they were like normal people, you know, it was unbelievable that these, you know, I'm, I'm now I'm, I'm hanging out and having, you know, interactions with these families that are just awesome people, you know, and I didn't have that, you know, the, the mom and dad, you know, her parents, her dad has became like my dad. Her dad was my best friend until the past, way he, until he passed, you know, her mom to this day, 84, 85, we'll be 85 here next month. I love the woman, you know, and uh, we've been married 26 years. You know, then what happened was we moved to Orange County. I mean, we moved from Orange County. Her brother sold the towing business. We had bought a house in Yorba Linda. We were doing well. She was pregnant. We got married. Then we moved up to Yucca Valley. And the reason why is because I had work out here that I knew I could do out here. And in the meantime, I came out here and I went to work. And we started a, um, we started a uh i bought a ready concrete truck a friend of mine he was in the um, concrete delivery business and i drove with him now, i poured out the back of a concrete truck as a concrete finisher but i've never driven and operated one so i went with him for one week and the following week um i'd sold a um i'd sold a harley that i built and that's how we bought our, our house out here and some of the money we got from the urban house and then we um with, with some of that money left over we bought a, a used concrete truck. I bought a concrete truck on a Friday and I pulled it under a plant Monday. Never, never done it and just faked it the whole time. Just faked it. Um, my friend Greg Bender can tell you that story because he's the one that showed me for a week on how to operate one. Yeah. And then I went in there Monday and then I ended up with a couple trucks. I was very busy. We were being very successful living here in Yucca Valley. Um, and then we... Uh, that, that's how I started in the in the ready mix concrete business. So what I've been doing. So as the owner operator, I would haul my I'd haul concrete for companies who didn't have enough trucks to supply all the material. Mm -hmm. So there was multiple ones. So what I do is every day I, I had also I had a broker who would broker me out, and he would take like I think like five percent or six percent of what what I made. The time we were making like uh, sixty five bucks an hour or something like that. It was, it was worth it. We we're making we we're making money that I never thought I would ever make. I mean, it was unbelievable. We were doing great. You know, mm -hmm. I, I had two babies, and um, and uh, I started. I came and I um, we came to Joshua Springs Calvary Chapel. Started going to church there. My and my kids uh, enrolled in preschool there, and and uh, we started getting really involved. And and I but I was really standoffish. I really stayed away from a lot of people. You know, I met people there at the church, and I kind of really didn't want to be all holding hands and singing kumbaya and dude i'm watching everybody doing that and i'm just i remember 
you know, I remember being in some placement homes that where the people were Christians and the dudes were pedophiles and, you know, and I just had a bitter yeah. taste, but it really wasn't, I know, I knew then that I'm not lumping all those people into that. I just didn't yeah. trust people. You it wasn't, me? it wasn't uh, God. Right. It was the people. Right. It, it had right. People. Totally yeah. wasn't God. It was the yeah. people. And that's my biggest issue with churches. It's still to this day, you know? Yeah. But, um, remember, uh, <clears throat> having to work one early one morning down 29 Palms Highway and, um, get pulled over. I stopped like two in the morning. A truck was parked down in Glenning at the time. So I'm driving a Benny to get in my truck there mm-hmm. to run into San Bernardino. This cop pulls me over. And, um, I, uh, he comes up to my car and he, I see Lobely on the side and kind of standing from in my shirt and his thumbs up. It's two in the morning. He looks flashlight and says, the reason why I pulled you over is you didn't have a license plate racket on or license plate light on your, on your, on your tail, on your um, license plate. Well, that's how he pulled me over because he saw me at the gas station and I was in a slingshot. He sees that I'm all sleeved up and he probably thinks in two o'clock in the morning, <laughs> Yucca Valley, you know what I mean? This dude's got to be There's got to be something. Right. So, yeah. but he's legally can pull me over because I don't have a li- I didn't have a light on my license plate. Right. So I called him everything but brown. And because uh, he is Hispanic. <laughs> and um, I just, I just, I just ripped this guy up one side and down the other. And he told me, well, and then he ripped around my name and he said, um, I was being so, I, I was being so hard on this guy. And he said to me, uh, he comes back. And I hated it because he was being calm and, and being polite. I wanted, I was trying to push his buttons to see where he was going to go. Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't, he wasn't having it. You wanted to like resort back to Right. Oh yeah. It, it, it instantly, it's instantly yeah. what it was. Instantly. My, my triggered right now. In my mind, why you shouldn't be pulling me over. And if you had pulled me over and said, Hey, the reason why I pulled you over is because you're, you're all tatted up and I've never seen you before. This is my beat. I would have been cool with that, but he can't do that. He's a, he's not going to yeah. give up his gravy like that. So I went off on him, bust him out, and he goes, well, aren't you supposed to tell me you're on parole? And, he, and I said, uh, no, you didn't ask. Goes, well, I'll call your parole officer, and I'll ask about that. And now I figure, oh, now you're threatening me my, my, with my, um, my freedom, you know, and that kind of irritated me, too. And I said, okay, well, you know what? Also, when you do that, you ask them, a parole officer of mine, who it is that you pulled over here at 2 o'clock in the morning, and you ask them what this, what this, what this havoc stop would have been like. 10, 15 years ago, because it wouldn't have gone in your favor. So then I just went off on him, calling him a little runt, coward, all these things. And I just disrespected this cop to like no end. Um, he didn't even write me a ticket. That pissed me off. He didn't even write me a ticket. Like, oh, now you're going to be a cool guy, you know? He didn't even write me a ticket. You know, he jammed me up, but, and then later, and to me, that was his way of getting back to me. Like, look, I'm going to give you a ticket, dude. Mm-hmm. You're all fired. I'm just no inconveniencing you. Yes. So whatever. I go, and so about three weeks later, four weeks later, maybe a month later, I'm dropping my kids off at, at the church at, at the Sunday school, preschool they got there. And uh, there's Lonely, a cop, dropping his kids off too. They're a little older, but they're dropping mm-hmm. them off at Sunday school. In fact, they're your age, right? Yeah. Yeah. Justin's my right. best friend. Yeah. Justin, you're right. <laughs> so he drops them off and uh, he goes, wow. I would have never expected a guy with a mouth like yours to go to church. And we sat outside there and started talking. And we moved to church. His wife and my wife were in church doing their thing. And him and I sat there and talked the whole time. And uh, to this day, it's one of my best friends. You know, that's just, this is how my story was. It's once again, I can re- revert back to Roberto and Cindy as, as 
what they've meant in my life because that's that structure that I needed, you know, the accountability in my life. Matter of fact, they even got grief from some of their, um, I remember one night they had me over at their house on New Year's Eve and and I was there, my, my wife and I, to celebrate New Year's Eve, but this only, I've known them for like a year, two years, mm-hmm. and they had cops, they were both still cops at the time, and yeah. there were cops coming in and out of patrol to, to get some of her pasoli and eat, you know, and they loved them, and they're all tripping. Cause I they, was there. Okay. <laughs> this, this whole town knew me, because at this time, I, and I had a really cool pro officer up here too, his name is Barry, awesome guy, he's like a big old biker, he is a biker, but great guy, you know, and um, and in this town, the valley, the cops knew me because it was a small town and this dude came in. It was a matter of time, you know. Even Barry told me that, you know, I was a poster boy. He says, I never I never expected it. Matter of fact, to this day, we're still friends. He had stopped by my house before and even hung out with my wife when I'm not even there, didn't tell her, you know, talking about the kids and, and stuff. It's just been it's been incredible, you know, how that worked out. Yeah. That's so nuts. I mean, that's how obviously how I know you. I I always knew that there was a, a story behind Billy Weaver. I mean, there's probably no one in this area that looks like you. Everybody knows who you are. They know what you sound like. For the listeners out there, it's just jacked white dude, bald, usually bald. I don't know if you're still bald. Oh, yeah. It's your, yeah. It's yeah. Shirt tatted, like tatted up. You know, everybody knows Billy. And uh, yeah, I just, I thought it was interesting to how, how your story has led to where it is. Because you're right. Like you're totally different now. Yeah, I'm, I'm thankful for that, you know, and there's, I've had a lot of good opportunities. God's been really good to me. I've had really good people put in my life. Um, and I've almost wrecked it many times. You know, there's been a lot of times I've been really close. Um, I've just, I've learned that, you know, that um, I'm still a reactionary person. I'm, I'm still that way. I'm, all, I'm, 50, I'm 59 in, in May, you know, an old man. And um, um, I'm crazy to think about. Oh, yeah. And, I, and, and in my life right now, I tell everybody I'm. I'm, I'm 40 something years overpaid already. I'm, I'm already in the black, you know, mm-hmm. my cup runneth over, but the Lord takes me tomorrow. I, I lived a great life. How many years into your 70 year sentence would you be right now? Um, oh, I would be, I would still, it, my parole date. So it was, uh, let's see, it was, it was 80. So it would have been, um, I figure it's 20. I'd be, it would be right around 2050 something. I'd be on there. Wow. That's nuts. Um, yeah, and obviously you learned a lot, you know, but a lot of your knowledge that you got was from the, basically the hard way. Yes. You know, we were, of hard knocks. Yes, yeah. absolutely. We were talking um, in the car about how there's a difference between like book smart and then there's the street smart. There's the person that's in the thick of it that's learning that way. And then there's the person that just reads it from a book or listens to a podcast or something. But how, how have you been able to take what you've learned about life and all of that and then pass it on to your your kids? Well, it's one is, uh, bottom line is um, consistency and being consistent, you know. I try to be consistent with my kids. I didn't have a dad that um, consistent with me. He wasn't there, you know. So, um, like I've you and I spoke before, I've taught my boys that, you know, nobody wants to be a tough guy anyway, but Tough guy's not a guy in prison. A tough guy's a guy that goes to work every day, pays his bills, raises his family. You know, um, they say, um, you know, you, you know, you've heard how tough people think. Yeah, I'm a man. I'll take a life. You know, it's uh, that's it's easy to take a life. The toughest thing I ever do is raise a life. Raising my children, 
it was the most rewarding thing ever. But I learned just one is that you you have to take anything that was bad, anything that's going on with you bad. There's always somebody who had it worse. So I could sit back and I went to counseling. I had a counselor really help me in my in, in, our, in our marriage. I went to a family therapist who opened up a lot of stuff for me that I really never knew that I dealt with. But but even and then she was she's awesome. She was she was great. She's a great lady. But still, to me, there's no excuse because no matter what, and I read a lot of books when I was incarcerated, and 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 uh, then really in biographies, and there's a lot of people who had life a lot harder, you know. Even in even in the Bible, you know, Paul was in prison and he wasn't even he didn't even do anything. You know what I mean? It's for his faith, you know. And so I I I learned that there's always somebody's got it worse. And whatever the situation in your right, you bet. What glasses are you looking them through? Are you looking through the negative glasses? Because I hate doing that. I hate staying negative because that was my life before. It was like, hey, the world sucks. My life sucks. My parents don't like me. Then what does it matter? You know what I mean? I didn't care. I used to have this mindset that you watch National Geographic that there's a lion and there's wildebeest. My, my life, my head, the world was wildebeests. Not the lion. When the Bible says to uh, do on others as you'd have them do unto you, I was do on others before they do unto you because I didn't trust people. And I learned to trust people and I learned to trust myself, you know, in situations. I see a situation and I look at the end result of it. I learned this in business. I have a ninth grade education, but to the company that I work for, we'll get into that. I do this thing called Kaizen, which the Japanese do where you're trying to solve a problem. So what you try to do is like, let's say that we're making this plastic bottle right here and we want to make it better. We're having some problems with this. So what do we do? We don't look through all the different areas of how it's made to try to figure it out. The best thing to do is go to the end result of the bottle. Well, let's follow it backwards to the, to, the, to the beginning of it. So in my life, I see a situation, think that situation all the way through to the very end and then bring it back. Because I know how it's going to end. I don't want it to end that way. So how do I make it better? That makes sense to you? Yeah, that's, how I, that's how I think. Right. And that's what I want. That's what I do in life, you know? And... When I, I'm, I'm a broken person, actually, the world is full of broken people, right? But what I've learned to do, and I get black inside. I mean, I get black inside. Um, I can really get on my pity potty. I mean, I've done some really horrible things to people in life, and I'll never be able to make up for that, you know? But the, the Bible tells me I don't have to, that, you know, that my sins have been forgiven. There are some people in this world that I wish I could look at them face to face as a man and tell them, hey, you know what? I apologize for what I did, you know, and that was wrong. You didn't deserve that. So my mind at the time, I, everybody I ever did something to had to come in. And that wasn't, that's not the case, but I'll never be able to do that. But the one thing I can do is become a better person. You know, um, the day my children put me in the ground, the day my children, you know, cause that's what, that's my, everybody. And I'm not against anybody having their own markers or how they mark their life and how they, how they judge their life. But for me, it's my children. I can tell you all about life, but I'm telling you, I raised four incredible human beings. They're just the most beautiful, awesome, healthy, smart, functioning individuals in the world. And how they came, dad that was so broken is beyond me. So thankful for that. But the one thing as it is, I love them through it the whole way. I did things wrong and might come to my boys and I tell them, what you saw earlier was a man that was out of control. Don't be that man. 
don't be that. I'm sorry for that. And it's not wrong. You don't have to do that. The reason why I'm this way is because of the way I've learned to process life and, and, and deal with life. And I, you know, it's not the way. And I've had to do the same thing in just in this life. And my goal was always to, to, I wanted to be, I knew, I didn't know what a good dad was, but I knew what a good dad wasn't. You know, and I just didn't do the things that my dad did. And I always wanted to be there for my kids. And then when it came to work, you know, I, I, I just loved being able to be employed. To have a body that was physically able to do something physical to me has always been a blessing in my life. And I loved building things. I loved being around it. And then so the, the whole concrete thing for me now is like I manage a I manage a very I took you today. I, I manage um pretty substantial. I work for a company that's been in business sixty five years. I've been with them twenty one years. Twenty one years of my life I've worked with these guys. Great family owned company. Just they've been so good to me. The whole family. I came to work for their uh the grandfather, the dad. So there's Bob Hove. There was his dad, Pappy Hove, who I never met, but there was Bob Hove who passed away in his nineties. John Hove, who's my boss now, and his son Harrison Hove, they run the company now. And I'm one of the, the main managers for the company. Um, and uh, they've been really good to me. I've I've helped their company grow in March. They've taught me a lot in business, and I've learned we're very competitive. We're a small family-owned regional. When I say small. There's 300 employees, you know, and uh, we have a, a you know right in you know to a hundred ready mix trucks and and home trucks. But uh, we compete against multinational conglomerates. I mean, huge companies, you know, and, uh, big, big boys of the world. And we we, we go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them every day. So I've been with them, and I run basically their ready-mix division in this area of the Morongo Basin and the Coachella Valley. I came to work for them. I was working for them as an owner-operator. came to Bob Hove, and I sat in his office. He would, he would they would rent my trucks, you know, monthly, and come sit in his office to get my check. And he'd always ask me about my kids. And he was one of those guys that sat at his desk with a cocktail in one hand and palm oil in the other. Old, cool, great guy. And he said, hey, why don't you sell me your Joshua Tree plant? I got a help person that will finance me and I want to buy that and I want to open that area up. He says, oh, that place isn't worth opening right now. There's no work out there. I said, yeah, there's a lot of work there. He says, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. Why don't you open it for me? Oh, I like to be my own guy. And I was... And what the offer wasn't there, you know, and the the, the money didn't, didn't seem like it was enough for me. And then um, I, uh, about five months later, they called me back in and had to sit down and we came to an agreement. And I was really only going to work with them for just a little while. You know? With that palm all in his hand and that cocktail glass in the other, he reached across the table, we shook hands. I don't even have the application on file for this company. That's how I came to work for these guys. Uh, I put three kids through college. I've owned and built multiple homes to these guys. I'm not a Rockefeller by no means. I've got kids that are in college that I take care of. But um, these guys have afforded me a life that I never, I never. Um, out of the Weavers, my my kids are the only ones that have ever in the history of our family have ever gone to college. Oldest daughter, is a, um, she is a, a um, mortician. She runs a funeral home up in Sacramento. Her and her husband and her daughter and, her, and my grandson live up in um, up in Sacramento. This boy, um, that's Devin, and then um, they're doing they're very successful. And then he works for a large um, uh, size uh, equipment company. My son um, Billy married his high school sweetheart. He uh, graduated school. They both did. They went to Grand Canyon State University. And Billy's a high school biology teacher with a master's in um, STEM. 
she's a, a psych major. She's a do- double major. Uh, my son Bennett is a just graduated from drill instructor school at uh, for the Marine Corps, but he's a he's a he's a sergeant in the Marine Corps. He's in uh, in MCRD San Diego. Yeah, MCRD San Diego. Yep. Yeah. You know. You know you, yep, I went there. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then um, uh, my daughter Samantha is on her third year as a double major at Grand Canyon State University, and just just great kids. You know. Yeah. They know my life. I've taken them to the places that I lived, you know, I've been to the places, I've taken them to the neighborhoods that I ran and looked in. And I, I explained them that there's not, they have choices in life. And some of those choices, you know, that you make could have um, negative impact on your life for years. And it took me a long time, you know, to come across that. And with a, a ninth grade education I have, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, I, I afforded a very good, you know, life myself and my family. Mm-hmm. Wife's a high school. I mean, my wife's school uh, is, is a great school teacher down in Palm Desert, at uh, or at, in Bermuda Dunes at a James Monroe Elementary School. She's loved by many. She's you know, and just been a, and like I said, then Roberto and I are still friends. You know, your dad is also yep. a person who I look up to. Who's a, you know, as a, as a fireman, I have yeah. a few of them that are friends of mine, and it's just been a, um, it's been a, and you don't. Like I said, you there's we don't always make the right choices sometimes. But and when you know the choice is wrong, you know, how you learn from something, it's not a mistake if you learn from it, you don't do it again. We just hope those mistakes won't be so detrimental that you can never come from it, come out of it again. Yeah. Um I've been I was in prison. I'm marked with tattoos. I'm um I have uh that was my life. But I've been a dad and I've been a ran a business longer than I ever was a convict. Longer than I ever was a drug addict. Um, I have a tattooed across my chest, sad but true, because that's that's how I used to say to myself, my story, it's sad but true, it's just who I am. I would never trade it. If the end result is to bring me where I am right now, I would do every bit of it again, all over again, the same way. You look back, you see how you would do life differently, but if the result wouldn't be the same as I am right now, I'm, I'm very thankful for, you know, for where I'm at now in life. I just think it's interesting, the family dy- dynamic where like my dad, when he grew up, um, it was a very tumultuous, you know, upbringing, also poor. And I think his stepdad was an alcoholic and they'd be fighting and stuff too. And you see people that go through that and they either follow in the same footsteps or they choose to not do that. Like my kids are never going to go through that. Yeah. And that was my goal. I used to tell my kids when they were young. There's only one room for one turd in this house, and I already took that spot. No more turds coming out of this house, right? This is me. And, um, you know, uh, we talked about it. So me and my dad, I, I never had a good relationship with my dad, you know, and I didn't go to the same schools as my brother and sisters did. I always went to some other school. My dad didn't have nothing to do with me. Well, about three years ago, my mom and dad were dying. My mom was dying of congestive heart failure, and my dad was in the throes of um, Alzheimer's. I was living down the lower desert, down at Bermuda Dunes. I was driving up to Yucca Valley. Um, they live on a home and a piece of property that my wife and I. And I was coming through taking care of them two, three, four times a week. It was just wearing me down. And um, I remember being young that I never understood why my dad didn't, you know, like me. And I tried to I really, there was a lot, for a long time as a young kid, I went out of my way to, um, to try to please him, you know, through sports. I, I I did well in sports. My dad never came to none of the games. He was just always there for my brother for everything. But uh but um 
now um, my mom and dad are d- dying and my dad says Alzheimer's. I'm coming up here and bathing him and feeding him. I mean, I'm bathing this man, giving this man showers. This man never so much as he, okay, for people out there listening to this, I don't, I give it to him. He gave me a roof over my head, put clothes on my back, but there was never love, you know? Um, but in his defense, he had a horrible dad too, you know? So he, he probably did better than his dad. But, um, you know, I always wanted this man's love. I always wanted his affection. Um, I saw it in other parents. My sons and me, right to this day, I have a, a Billy, who's a high school biology teacher, is also, you know, a, a champion wrestler in high school and is an incredible jujitsu practitioner right now. He's a beast. And my son's a Marine. They'll walk through that door right now if they were to hug me. They'd both kiss me straight on. I'd kiss them both straight on the face. That's just how we're affectionate. <laughs> it is that way. I'm with my family. My dad had never even heard him tell me, love me. Um, I'm coming up here bathing this guy every day. My brother and older sister have no relationship with my parents. They basically abandoned them. They don't get along. Just many years of just total dysfunction, and I don't blame them. But I'm up here taking care of this guy and I bathe him every day, thinking, man, this guy never did nothing with me. You know, didn't make up for me. Well, during this time that they're being that taking care of them, um, and I'm doing it because that's what it was. I was. It was part of me yeah. felt compassion and that it was an obligation, responsibility to take care of him because that's what the Bible tells us to do. And a lot of it irritated me. But the main thing, my children were watching. I wanted to see my children, how I reacted to what was going on with my parents, that I was there for them. Not that in hopes that they do the same for me, but just I wanted to show them, right? And um, I remember my dad, you know, I'm bathing him. I mean, I'm bathing this, I'm changing his diapers. And um, so my kids came home for vacation. Then it was home on leave. Billy was home for Easter break. My daughters were home. Everybody, they said, hey, we're going to do, this is when we're down for me to do it. said, hey, we're going to do Ancestry.com. We told me, yeah, go ahead and do that. Um, go ahead and credit card numbers right there by the computer, run it, and do whatever you got to do. So they did. And they all went back to school. Like two weeks later, these things came in the mail. I spit in one. My wife spit in the other. Sent them off. My wife was under Samantha's email and mine was under my son Billy's email. So a couple weeks later, Sammy calls her mom and says, hey, go look online. Your, uh, your ancestry's on there. And I found it. It was all the, her family's online where it's supposed to be. About three weeks later, 10 o'clock at night, Billy calls me and says, dad, what are you doing? I go, I'm in bed. Why? What's up? You okay? No, go to the computer. Log on to this. Sit down. And uh, we go ahead and we look it up. And so Dement side, which is my mom's Dement, my maiden name, they're all Irish and Scottish like we thought, all from the South. I'm looking over on the, the male side of my DNA and there's nothing but Hispanic. Um, there's nothing but Amadors on there and some Pinetas. So we, I always thought my whole life, you know, I'm much larger than my dad. My brother has blonde hair and green eyes. You said earlier that you're sitting across from me, explain to everybody out there that this, you know, big old white boy, all right? So I identify as white, right? right. Well, I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad's name was, was last name was Pinetta. Um, understand I have an older brother, an older sister, and an older brother. And a younger sister. They all three have the same mom and dad. I'm the only one that has a 
my dad's home. My dad was incarcerated. My mom hooked up with Sancho and impregnated by me. So now I'm in this. I always thought something was up. My wife used to say, let's take some of your dad's hair mm -hmm. and, and run it because I know he's not your dad, right? And um, so now that opened up doors like now I realize why my dad I was a bastard. Yeah. I didn't like it. I was a reminder all the time of my mom's infidelity to him, why he was locked up. And even though there was much infidelity on his side, even when he was for many years, I knew that my dad cheated on my mom and vice versa. You know, the norm in our house. And uh and I'm sitting there and I'm watching this guy and I'm bathing him like the very next day after I hear this, you know, thinking to myself, ain't this something else, man? This is just what what's going on here. And also, my brother has one child. My older brother has one child. It's a daughter. And my older sister has one child, and it's a daughter. It's a girl. And my younger sister's never been married, has, has no kids. Been married a couple times, but has no kids. I'm the only one that gave my dad grandsons. I'm the only one that carries on the Weaver's name, even though we're not Weavers. I'm not a Weaver. My kids are not Weavers, but we carry the Weaver name. Wow. I'm bathing this guy. And... And I kind of that night, I was a little irritated. I'm like, oh God, what, what, what more? What more do you want? What, what, what is this all about? You know, and I'm in my little whining pity pot. And that's, I don't really go there very often, but, and he, and he spoke to me and he said, you know, and not audibly, that's never happened to me in my life, but I'm just saying for the people out there, he's, <laughs> he spoke to my heart and basically said, Hey, your whole life, you've always wanted to have a relationship with your dad. And that's probably the root of, just about everything that's right. happened is that. Right. And here you are and you have one now. Look, you're taking care of your dad. You know, you're having to come closer. How much closer can you get your relationship when you're sitting there watching the turds off your dad's butt? I mean, you can't get much closer than that. Taking care of him, feeding him, bathing him, bullying him, putting clothes on him. You know, he never did that for me when I was a kid. And here I am as a grown man now and he's old and I'm taking care of him like I wanted to be taken care of as a kid. Didn't get all you know mushy about this or whatever, but it's just life, you know. Um, I'm accepting of it. Took it. Um, greatest thing about this is that um, I didn't want to beat my mom and dad up. They're both on their deathbeds, so I didn't really talk about it. My mom did not. I brought it up to her. She did not want to talk about it. She said, "You know, my dad knew obviously that this because he was in prison. He came out and there was a kid." Um, my brothers and sisters didn't know. This was validation for them. We understood why things happened the way they happened now. Um, but the cool thing about it is I have a whole gang. You know how us Mexicans are. We procreate, man. <laughs> we got a lot. Just look at them. And yeah. And we have, <laughs> I have so many primos and primas and tias and tios. I've met my brother. My, my, my biological dad passed away. I met my brother. I'm in contact with nephews of mine. I have so many cousins. I have cousins that I grew up with in Orange County that were like right there next to me. And I never even knew them. That's cousins, crazy. You know, and it's just, once again, the terminal uniqueness comes through, you know, it's like, how does this, does it ever end? You know? And, uh, but it's been a, um, it's been a pretty, it's pretty, pretty cool thing. You know, um, it's pretty ironic, you know, for a guy sitting across from you who has, you know, white power and warbirds tattooed him that I'm, you know, um, I call myself now instead of saying I'm white and bright and brown and white, I'm bright. <laughs> What's the other one now? I'm a red Mexican. That's what I am. A red Mexican instead of a redneck. Um, and, uh, it's, yeah, it's been, it's, it, it, we, we, it's just one of those things that you just, yeah. what are you going to do with it? You know? And I, when I was personally in prison, you know, you, you, there was a, uh, 
racial connotation uh, with the, what, everything that goes on there. But really, that was never who I was anyway. You know, it's not the person that I really was. I never hated another person that was um, just because of their race. That was never something I did. It was, um, yeah, a lot of the people that I hung out with, that's what they're. But even then, you know, I was, I remember one time when I was in, in, in prison, I was getting, um, there was an inmate who was uh, uh, stabbed in, in, um, in his cell, was being taken to court on it. And there was three people in courtroom who were testifying, pointing finger at me saying that he did it. And these were people who were trying to get their sentence reduction or trying to get favors from the prison for doing it. And these were white inmates who were supposedly friends of mine, brothers of mine. And they're sitting there pointing their fingers at me. The one inmate that came forward to testify in my behalf was born enemy of mine from Chicago. I called him shy. Um, he was, uh, we never had a problem with each other, but if we ever got next to each other, we would attack each other. It's just how it was. Um, he didn't have family out here on the West Coast, so I would flip him over some um, coffee every once in a while and some stamps to write his mom, you know. And he was a soldier. Don't get wrong. I watched him go out to the yard and get down with two or three whites at a time, you know. But uh, um, I knew me and this guy were going to have it sooner or later. They're going to slip and we're going to be on the yard. We're going to be bombing on each other. But this guy actually testified on my behalf. So here I am. And that's kind of when I got jaded, you know, when I saw how really, you know, people were, it was all really about the dope and it was really about you know, yeah. bettering themselves. And it really wasn't this. No honor among thieves kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it was one of those things that, and it's just, uh, so yeah, that's just kind of my story, you know, and that's just yeah. kind of where it went. And, but right now, you know, we're, um, we're empty nesters. My wife and I, we sold our home. We built a little casita by her mom's on her mom, on the property that her mom lives at. So we can take care of her. Cause she's 80, she'll be 85 next month. Um, we made that decision cause she knew what it was like for me going up and down the hill every day. So we're there close to her and it's worked out great. You know, um, we're, uh, business is really good. You know, the, the industry is just, we're, we're keep hearing about this doomsday um, recession that's coming. And I do believe there's going to be a slowdown. You know, we have interest rates are still keeping, you know, a lot of people from buying homes. It's very unaffordable, but we've kind of, we're doing a lot of um, residential, but we also have a lot of um, foot in a lot of infrastructure that we do and commercial work. So yeah, we're staying. You were talking, we're close to the 29 Palms Marine Base. You are telling me right. about all the, all the work you guys have yep. done out there. We do a lot of work for them. We do a lot of work for the Metropolitan Water District. We do a lot for the water district down below. We have some really good. And then the Coachella Valley is like a, um, uh, is a, what I call, I don't know if it's the right terminology, it's a false economy. You can't really judge that because the money there is so much. I mean, you have Indian Wells, which has more billionaires per capita than any place in the right. world. Obama has a house there. Yeah, he has one of Thunderbird yeah. Country Clubs, yeah. yeah. And there's, you know, we're doing it. We're getting ready to do a, a, a called Catino project down there right now. It's a Disney project. It's right across the street from Sunnylands, which is, um, it's... Between Gerald Ford and Gene Autry and Monterey and Bob Hope, it's a Disney-themed um, country club. The housing there is still blowing up. You know, there's because those are all people who are retired. You know, you're, you're, you know, the people. So yeah, we've been very busy down there still. I mean, we're still hitting record months down there mm -hmm. in down in Coffee. When we were walking through the, the rock quarry in 29, um, you were talking about how. Rocks in general kind of become scarce. Right. And you were talking about a place out in Vegas, and I believe you're talking about the Summerlin area. It's the west side of Las Vegas. Um, they built a bunch of houses all over 
basically prime rock right. area. Yep. What what do you see moving forward is the best way to combat the scarcity of rock? I mean, we still gotta build things. Right. So in it was emerging in California, right? Is you have so many environmental protection agencies, so much EPA stuff, you have so much bureaucracy, right? We can't even mine the property that we own that's that has um been zoned for mining and that's it's that's what that property is for we bought it we've owned it in this family the family's owned it for years and we have to go through a full-on process hundreds of thousands on millions of dollars just to mine this stuff going forward um yeah you got to think about it how do you make rock you can't make rock it's a it's a one-time deal once it's once it's gone it's gone you know um you have areas like san san diego they we we they truck rock into san diego because there's no rock you have to, there's they're out yeah. there everywhere um, there's gonna to, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of things in the works of how they're gonna try to sustain that. They're dealing with different, you know, maybe taking crushed concrete, broken concrete, and trying to re. Well, we do recycle that. That's been going on for years. But they're working mix designs where they're building, um, you know, they're trying to make a mix designs where they're using that as an aggregate form. You know, um, there's, there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, there's a there's a guy even trying to take carpet. And he's mixing it with other aggregates, you know, uh, carpet and milled up into fine carpet just to give it. Um, but you got to have, you got to meet certain PSI. So it depends on the job and the spec that it's requiring, but it's going to be a problem. I mean, there, there's a lot of areas, not only that area that you're talking about, there's an area that's over in, in um, Ranch Cucamonga that they built next to a, uh, an old quarry out there that built on all that property. The property was bought up at the time by a developer and that property is you know mineable material and it'll, it'll never be mine now because the houses are on it it's going to come a time you know it might not be in my time and your time but it'll be a time where they're going to run out of it how deep are you allowed to mine because i know in texas if you own a property i don't know how it is for commercial but if you own a property it goes all the way to the center of the earth that's like right. how they well not here here you got it you can't you can't in california you can't ever mess with the water table once you start hitting a water table you got to stop um i don't know if you know in and some people on here that might hear this podcast might have a little more knowledge than me, so I'm not trying to speak out of turn, but dredge um, mining, which doesn't really, you don't see that happening very much anymore. It's expensive to do, but it's just not dredging where, in other words, you're using a bucket dredge to go inside and grabbing the rock out of the water. That used to be a very common practice, but most municipalities don't like you messing with the water table. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So once you're into that water table, then, you know, that piece of equipment busts uh oil line or a hydraulic line, you know, contamination gets in there, then you get a whole different issue, you know? Yeah. I just, the reason I ask is because if, <clears throat> obviously if you're buying a house or you're, you're building houses, you need concrete, right. obviously, right. or, you know, commercial buildings or whatever. So if you're going to build on that site, can you do like what they do back East, where if you're buying a property, you use the lumber from the trees that you're taking down to build the property. Well, you can do that to a point. I mean, with the trees, I mean, yes, if you have something there that'll have a portable little mill that can cut all that lumber to the specs that you need for two by fours, two by sixes, two mm-hmm. by eights. And stuff. But as far as concrete, for you to be able to mine the con- the rock sand there, you're going to have to still bring in cement, and you have to pull the you'd have to pull a substantial amount out of it, you know, because it's got to figure in every yard of concrete. There's you know you're looking at like just a typical yard of concrete. You're looking at like um, probably three thousand uh, or excuse me, about 1,200 pounds of, um, of aggregate to the same amount as sand. You know, like a 50-50 mix, or it's like a 
40-60 between rock and sand, you know. So that it, it's going to it takes quite a bit, you know. Right. And they're they're trying to do different things for sustainability. They're they're trying all different types of models and stuff now, and and it's kind of cool, you know. Some of it I don't. It, it looks great. I just don't know how you're going to you know production wise how you're going to do it because that's really when it comes down to business mm-hmm. is you're going to have to do a production, you know. Um, concrete is the number one used building material in the world. Mm-hmm. So this fits the foundation of everything. Right. I mean. What are you going to build it on? Sand, and then watch it. Watch it get. Well, the Bible told you about that. Yeah, yep. The Bible <laughs> tells you about that. That's not a good thing. You know what I mean? You got a lot of flash flooding out here. Yeah. That, that is so, wise. <laughs> right, and it, and the concrete is a you know it's a structural product that's you know going to always be there. You know, mm-hmm. and it's just something that I also also know how we're going to get around that. Yeah, and it takes manual labor to get it out of the ground, and takes manual labor to make it, and mm-hmm. it's just. And then you get to the point of the whole thing of you know California with the with the carb laws and the zero emissions. I don't know how they're ever going to, you know. Yeah. It, to me, it just doesn't make sense. I I'm not saying it's the end all. It's all these young minds thinking out of the box, and and even old minds opening themselves up to to different opportunities. I'm all about that. But you have even like all the all these electric vehicles that are driving around. I mean. They still had to be mined. Yeah, the lithium, lithium had to be mined by a by a coal burning, mm-hmm. you know, piece of equipment. Not to, I mean, not to mention the fact that lithium mines are crazy yeah, big. Oh well, yeah, and it's and you want to talk about hazardous waste, man? Yeah. It's incredible. You know, and I because I told you I worked down in the oil refineries a little bit, and if you're listening to the news, basically any anything oil related is like the devil. Right. But if you go down and look at the plants and how they operate now, a lot of the new mines coming in and seeing how to make things more efficient and how to one of the big things is they take the byproduct of what they have and sell it to another plant that uses that byproduct in their process. Right. And then they have a byproduct and they sell it to this other plant that uses it. And it's it's kind of a well oiled machine. Right. Yeah, it's just it's some of it I don't understand. I'm trying to beat myself up with, you know, like here in this town, Yonge Valley right now, sure. there's a building moratorium because of the Joshua tree. Yep. Right. You can't move the Joshua tree. You know, you can't get moved with the build within 10 feet of the Joshua tree. I'm not saying here that we should destroy all Joshua trees, but I mean, um, there's a. What's the sustainability? Right. You know, if you're. If you don't want the town to die, you have to build something. You have to bring people here, which means they need housing. But if you can't build anywhere, what do they, what do they do? Right, and and it's, and then how do you, and what's a good one today, you know, may not be good tomorrow, and it's that's just life. And I'm and I'm getting to the point at fifty eight where I'm kind of jaded by it. I'm like, well, we'll have to see how this thing plays out, you know. But we're doing a job down in the lower desert, and we're pouring concrete right next to the windmills, right? Mm-hmm. One of our, not our trucks, but one of the company's trucks parked there. I saw the environmentalist getting on him saying, Hey, you have to put a, um, you need to put plastic underneath that, um, that loader because the loader's leaking. And they, you see that on job sites in California. They'll yeah. put like little kid um, cubs under, mm-hmm. little kid pools, kid pools underneath them. And I get that. You know, they well, don't. When want... I was training out in the 29 Palms Marine Base, they would have us do right. that. Have to do we're sitting the underneath those, um, those wind generators, right? Mm-hmm. Palms Marines. And, I look up at the wind generator, which is supposed to be, you know, it's, uh, you know, you know, green, right? Mm-hmm. And it's got oil. Sorry, you can go look at them right now. All black, all the way down, and it's and it's in the wind. It's blowing all over the desert. Yeah, but they're crying about this, but how they take care of that? 
Right. You know, in another instance, we're pouring out at Wiley's, Wiley Wells Road off the 10 freeway out there, right? We're doing concrete. We're doing this little uh, retention pond right outside the, um, the freeway. And I get it. I don't want to destroy anything we, we're not supposed to, right? My guy's washing his shoots off. And clear water that's landing on the after she's not cementous material, but the lady read us the right act, the, the environmental doctor saying, Look, that cement material is is um classified as uh hazardous material out here. We can't have that on the ground right there. We're off the freeway right there, right? Which is is has asphalt mm-hmm. freeway. When the water when the rain comes, that asphalt has oil base to it, it shimmers off of that, comes into yep. the same dirt. Every car, truck, and vehicle that drives on yeah. there's leaking oil, battery acid, brake right? Brake dust. But light, also, yeah. we just got you pouring 300 yards of concrete on the ground here. It's also touching the ground. Right. Where does it stop? Where, where do we have common sense? I'm all about rules because I have to have, we just talked about earlier, I have to have structure in my life. Believe me. I don't want to see these contractors with no structure. I don't want, I don't, I, they have to have guidelines. I get yeah. it. But, to the point of where it is hard to do business in this state right now. I mean, yeah. it's very hard. And um, everybody wants to leave California and say, hey, we're, you know, but I'm telling you, they're in the, people aren't moving to Texas from California. They're not moving from Arizona, California to Arizona. They're not moving from California to Tennessee. They're colonizing, mm-hmm. right? They leave here, they go there, and they bring their same... Mm-hmm. philosophy and the thoughts and next thing you know arizona is going to be a part of california texas is going yeah. to be a part of california it's just going to be that that same mentality yeah. and where do we have the, where do we have the you know in, in in my in my industry i mean we can go sit here today and get into politics all day long but where does it where does it end? yeah where does it when you're when you're starting to when your policies start to affect the business infrastructure in this country to where people can't have a way of life i mean were you guys considered a small business when they shut everything down for COVID? Uh, we weren't considered a small business, but we were considered a, um, what's the word? A uh, um, Essential. Essential. Yep. <laughs> what an interesting we, word. We never, yeah, essential. Yeah. We never, we never, um, we never lost one day of work. We, yeah. It was business as usual all the way through. And that was, that was part of the reason why during that time uh, I moved down to go work in the oil industry because I was like, there's certain industries that are not going to shut down. No matter how much people scream and cry about oil, everything we have comes from some kind of oil. Right. And if you think about every single building <clears throat> in the country has probably concrete underneath it, or, or it's on cinder blocks, or it's right. on, you know, like walls, like masonry, like everything. There's some kind of rock that is needed. There's certain industries that are not going to stop. But what do you do when those industries that are essential for our way of life start to get so regulated that they're not even able to do things and stay in business? It's getting too expensive. Property taxes are crazy. EPA regulations. Yeah, and I don't, I, and I don't know what the answer to that is. But here in California, it seems like the politicians make a rule, make a law, and then you how to figure out how to, how to survive as the rule sometimes is like this whole car compliance where vehicles you know we're going to be what in um, 2035 we have to be no 
no carbon. Um, yeah, they're not allowed to sell carbon. I don't vehicles like. Yeah, I don't even know how will, how that will even happen. And I mean, I in my industry, I don't see how that can happen. The lithium mines are going to get pretty stinking big in Nevada. No, how long in that vehicle? I mean, how? Can no, no, it's it's you saw the pieces of equipment that are out there at the quarry. How is something like that going to be able to yeah. run electricity? It's just not going to happen. Well, and I think about it too, like. We, we don't take into effect human ingenuity. Like, we can all pretty much agree we're on the same planet hurtling through the universe right, right now. We only got one shot at this. Right. We all got to live here together. What about the human ingenuity of saying, okay, yes, climate change, you know, if it's affecting the environment, we don't want to have trash all over our desert. We don't want to have, you know, whatever. Right. Straws and sea turtles or whatever. Whatever the thing is. So come up with something. Don't destroy entire industries of people that that's their way of life. Right. That is essential to them. Right. It makes you think that you can say that that's not essential or it is. Right. And and have an answer for it if you think that you and, – and have a way to either slowly implement that in. Mm -hmm. Then they say, well, that's what we're doing with the 2035. No, you're not. You're not even close. You know what yeah. I mean? So it's just that, you know – and like I said, this this podcast we could do this forever on, right. on on those subjects, but I just get to the point where um, I I have a I hustle when I'm 58 years of age. I hustle because of like down there I built a pretty good size. When I say I, I spearheaded it, but it was through the support of my company. But we uh, we have the largest market. Six five years of down there, lower death. It's it's a huge market. We tapped in there. It's been great. And I have all these drivers and we've met their wives and I've met their kids. And their, um, their lives depend on us keeping that going. I'm not saying they couldn't go find a job and doing something else, but and if they had to, I'm sure they would. But I don't think they should be forced to, you know, on a, on an idea that hasn't even been, you know, proven. Does that make sense? What yeah. I'm saying, yeah. And I, and I fear for that. I fear for you know, um, that's where I think it's people are. I read a thing saying that the, I read a um a report here recently that said that 65 percent, 63 percent of all of all people who are able to work in the United States, it's only like 63 or 65 percent are working, and that is, I'm, I, I, we have trucks, brand new, $275,000 piece of equipment that we can't even find drivers for. We got, we're, we're shorthanded everywhere. We can't find people that want to come to work. Mm -hmm. It's not just our industry. It's everybody. I see it everywhere. People can't get employee, can't get employment, right? Or can't find employees. So also in that same report, and I don't know the areas, I wish I would have, if I should have thought about this and brought this, I don't know I'd bring this up here, but in the report that I was reading, they said 63 to 65% of the people that are able to work are the only ones working. And of the ones who aren't, their income in areas that they live is anywhere from like 80 to $100,000. It can be up to with 80 to $100,000 a year. Yeah. But they're making by not working. They, and in the areas they're in, the the medium incomes like forty thousand, thirty thousand, fifty thousand dollars. Unemployed, they are at a higher income bracket than the medium income. How do you compete with that as a business owner? Thank you. And then also, how is that sustainable? Yeah, you're paying for that. You're paying for that. Everybody that's working is paying for that. 
Yeah. How, and they keep printing money. We just talked about this. I, I'm a friend Flintstone. I make big rocks into little rocks. I'm not that. I'm not a rocket science, right? I'm ninth grade education, but we'll see how we can. Yeah. How do you compete with that? I got. It's just to me, and I'm not. I'm not saying what people should make away. We've we our pay scale's gone way up. We pay we yeah. pay very well. You guys pay well. Most most industries that are similar to yours in the industrial pay well. Trades, plumbers, you know, electricians, they pay very well, and. Part of the reason why I wanted to start this podcast and get different people from different industries on is because I feel like there's too many people in society that are so disconnected from the reality of the world we live in. They don't understand that there are jobs like yours that maybe you will like just because you're out working and you might have long hours. It might be fulfilling, but you have to try. And I don't know if there's many kids today that even know that there's a job like yours out there. We and they're, they're and, and that's sad because it's like I've said to my boys. It's not that I didn't want them to do what I'm doing. I wanted them to try their own thing. They're more than welcome to come do this. Um, well, but you're you're absolutely right. And for me, I love this industry. I love what I do. Um, my daughter sent me this um, it's a meme or a gift or whatever. It's one of those. Yeah, since we're saying where a dad is with his daughter. And he's like, see that, honey? Betty built that. See, and they're going through town. And, and I can go through this town. I can go through many towns, right? yeah. all over of, of towns. And I can show you the stuff that we were part of manufacturing. I like that. Mm -hmm. I, I have pride in that. I can tell you jobs that we've done that, you know, we put concrete in places that people didn't think concrete we put. I put them in places. But I've done, we've done helicopter lifts. We've done amazing stuff. And there's other companies that are way bigger than us that have done much more than we, we've done. But a very... Um, I'm very prideful at my guys are too. We love that we get these things done. Uh, it's a it's a job where we see daily uh, progress. You know what I mean? And we thrive on, we shop in, we walk on all of our families, our friends on stuff that we manufactured, that we built, concrete that we placed, concrete that we poured. You know, uh, it's, it's just a, it's 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 you know every time you flush your toilet in this town, um, it goes through a. a goes to a, a, a wastewater treatment plant that my company put every bit of the concrete in for it, you know? Yeah. Um, um, it's, it's been a rewarding thing. And I think that, but that could be with any job, mm -hmm. you know, a cleaner to say the same thing, a plumber to say the same thing. And, and my children were, are, um, besides my son, the, you know, the Marine Corps, but my kids are all, you know, went to college and we're, I'm very proud of that. But also I'm very proud of, you know, the people who I, who work with me and take the time to, you know, to, and realize that, you know, college isn't for everybody. There's so much work out there. People want it. I don't know what's wrong. I don't know how to fix it. People can, I'm, I know friends of mine uh, and my kids do, they play video games, but that doesn't mean that they don't live life. Right. You know, I'm not blaming it on that. I just, um, I just know that there's a, there's a disconnect in this country that I've never, I've never seen before. And there is, there is, um, I don't know what this is going to do for us, Taylor. I don't know what's going to happen. But there's uh, people out there who say that there's no work or they can't find a job. There's mm -hmm. plenty of work. You know? Yeah, I don't know. I I see it just face value. It's like a top-down problem. There's not enough. There's not a solid leadership at the top. We kind of talked about it a little bit in the truck, how you have people that are in the thick of it, doing the job every day, and then you have the people that look at, you know, what is our profit margin? Right. And they're looking at a spreadsheet and they're like, oh, this is how many people we can hire. And it's just numbers and it's not real. 
And I think that real thing was kind of crucial to build the country that we have today. Right. I agree. disconnected from me. I agree. You know, when I go into Home Depot, which I have to go and cry to bed, and you go in there and um, they don't like using the personal scanners. For the simple reason, the company is saving money by having to hire less people, right? Um, they're saving on wages. They're saving on um, just cost period insurance and everything else. Mm-hmm. And they don't pay their people more. They're not giving me a cost break because of that money saving. It's just going to the to the to it's going in their profit. Okay, great. You don't have to work at Home Depot, then you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's still a lot of company. And I'm not saying nothing wrong. People working at Home Depot, you know. But there's a um, there's it's a perfect example of just everybody like standing in line for something, you know. You don't have, you have to choose to stand in line. You don't have to, if you can live without whatever it is that everybody else is standing in line with or figuring out that it's not conducive to your life or standing in line is just not worth it, you don't have to work. But it seems like to me, nowadays people say, well, everybody's standing over that line over there, honey. We should, I don't know what they're doing, but we need to go stand in that line. Mm-hmm. Does that make, yeah. you know? My last podcast I have, I haven't released it yet. Um, it might be released by the time I put this out, but um talking to a carpenter up in Antioch, California. and he made a point about how people don't know what they can build. Yeah. Like they just don't know what they don't know. And I think it, Mike Rowe talks about it. You know, Mike Rowe is yeah, the dirty dog guy. Yep. He talks about how like, you know, you're not going to know what you like or don't like unless you get out there and try it. You know, if everybody's being pushed college, heck job. Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. Like if that's what they're being pushed and then they get there and they see if this isn't actually fulfilling. He was an engineer before he was a carpenter. Um, he wasn't very fulfilled with it. Now he's, you know, he's living a meager lifestyle right now, you know, but he's booked out for four months and he's doing what he loves and he's really good at it. Right. He wouldn't have known unless he stepped up and tried it. And we talked about how, you know, if you not saying you got to take all of the world's problems on your back, but if you go out into the world and there's something that's bothering you and you look around and no one's fixing it, you should take on the responsibility to fix it. But everybody would rather go on Facebook and argue about how things need to be done and then hoping that somebody else is going to take care of it when you could be the one to build it. Yeah. That human ingenuity that people just overlook. Right. Like, let's give it to a computer because it's going to be cheaper. And and it's it's cool that you bring that up because the we want to talk about, at my age, Back when we were, and I never wanted to be that guy. I never wanted to be. I worked with old men who would tell me, oh, you know, back in my day, we, you know, this and that, and tell me all, you know, how we worked circles around us. And, but, so I loved, uh, I loved to hike, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I go to all kinds of places and I go to these old mining spots, right? And I find old Model A trucks back there in the boulders. Those guys had to like mine that material they had to take boards with them and lay it in front 20, 30 feet, drive the truck, pull them up 20, 30 feet into the truck. How did the guys in the 20s, 30s, and 40s humble me? Mm-hmm. Even the guys who fought World War II, they went and fought World And I'm not taking nothing away from anybody that fight and anybody that PTSD and all. I believe it's all legit. And I'm, and I'm so thankful for all of our military and, and the sacrifices they made. God love them all. And I think they deserve everything they think they have coming to them. Those men in World War II, I was hired by one. My boss was a World War II vet. They fought World War II. 
come out of a out of a depression, fought a war, and then came home and built a nation. Yeah, you know what I mean, incredible men. Yeah. The one thing I give it to the, the whatever you want to call the generation now, Z, millennials, whatever it is, right? The opportunity. Yeah. We just talked about it's true that only 67% of the workforce is working. If you become the group of people who figure out why that is and change that, or if you figure out how it is that we can still do what we're doing now, but sustain it. Right now, everybody's talking to, you know, worried about the economy and interest rates and so forth. I think these times right now, Forward opportunity for people to come up with the most incredible, mind blowing opportunities. You know? Haven't done it yet, but I really want to do a solo podcast and talk about the importance of. I think the millennial generation. I'm part of it, so maybe that's a little biased, but I think it's important for my generation because we're in the middle of a generation who didn't have the technology we have, and then now we do, and now we're in charge of companies that are using this technology. Maybe we created the technology. We kind of bridge that gap between the two worlds. You know, like you think about the the time before the Industrial Revolution versus after. You know, before the Industrial Revolution, you had a bunch of 12, 13 year olds that were gearing up to go to World War II. And then after, where they came back and built the nation, they were just as great as I think the potential for the millennial generation is now. Absolutely. But we have, we have so much technology at our disposal that we're just not using. We're using it to do stupid TikTok dances. You're right. I think there's a distraction there. That's yeah, there's a, there's a distraction, and I don't know if it's a malicious intent at the the high level. I like to look at the macro level of things and see how, you know, this push toward this like global agenda. We talk about, um, you know, one world government, one world currency. Okay, I look at okay. I know what the end game is because I read the Bible, and this is what the Bible is saying the end game is. This is what it's going to look like. How do you reverse engineer this back to where we are today? Not saying that we can prevent that from happening, right? But how do we live in a world? We don't know how many generations are going to be from now to when the rapture happens, right. or even when the actual end of the world happens. We don't know. But what can we do now to set up the next generation? Yeah. You know, we're not using what we have at our disposal correctly, and we're suffering for it. We're seeing it now. We're, we have a very small window to to really make do with what we have before. It kind of all comes crumbling down. Right. And I agree with you on that. And I think you can change it, even though we knew the end result in the Bible, what it says, you know, um, or, uh, um, but also what the Bible tells us, and, you know, he'll heal it, you know, mm-hmm. who's to say that I can't come out, you know, in a, in a better, you know, in a light. And I'm yeah. all about that. And I, I do, I, I still, um, I just told your parents just from our ride out to 29, you know, I, I'm calling them on you. You, my children, Justin, many other kids that I've met, I, I have major hope, still have major hope. And a lot of guys I work with, I have, I have some young guys that I work with that are just hard charging, go getting guys. And they're still got, they still dabble with one foot into the, into the tech world and all these things that, mm-hmm. that, that they're still out there that, you know, but those things can be used. Me and well, man, I'm telling you, I have fixed my refrigerators and I've fixed washers and dryers because of YouTube. And I swear by it. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? I swear by it, you know? I'm podcasting right now. Like, yeah. What is this? Yeah. This is the world we live in. Right. So, very cool. Yeah. 
I don't know. World world is crazy sometimes. It's pretty cool. Do you ever look back and uh, even if it was like gang members or something, mentors of yours that gave you a little piece of little nugget of wisdom that you've taken? Yeah. So <clears throat> I had a, um, I had a seventh, my, my eighth grade. So back when I was in eighth grade, you had to pass history class and social studies before you go to high school. You had to. Mm-hmm. And I was failing miserably. I mean, I felt like I was getting kicked out of school. And we had multiple, we had like seven classes in eighth grade back then. I don't think still do that in middle school or nowadays, but um, there was this one guy who was a history teacher. I didn't like him. He didn't like me. And he took his kids really, he really took his kids um, serious. He really looked after his kids in his classes. Matter of fact, he used to tell his, like the girls would tell me, the girls in class, they'd tell, he'd tell me, he'd stay with me, Billy Weaver. His name was Schlothauer. That was his name. Yeah. And um, Mr. Schlothauer. And uh, I had his wife, who he married later on. It was Mrs. Arnold, my third grade teacher. She's a really nice lady. But anyway, but I knew this man was smart. I knew he was a good teacher. And it was one of those things where there was a lot of times in life that I self-destructed because I was too afraid to try something and fail. So instead of do this and try it and maybe not be good at it or fail, I said, oh, that's stupid anyway. I don't want it. You know what I mean? Because, or I would do something and wreck it because it's easier for me to throw something away than for you to take it from me. Does that, does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. So I always liked this teacher. I hated that he didn't like me. I always wanted to be one of those kids that was in his class. So Mrs. Smith was kicking me out of class. I was actually going to get kicked out of school. I came to Mr. Slothauer and I said, hey, look, I, I'm at the end of my rooms at school. You know, and this is as a young kid. I told him this. I told him, um, I'm done over here. I'm not, they're going to kick me out. And um, I'd like to give me a chance in your class. You know, I think you're a good teacher. You know, I think I can work well with you. And uh, we had a long talk. And he said, look, you have, uh, you have a lot of things going against you. But in history, there was a lot of people who had a lot of things going with them. You can change. Your past doesn't have to be your future. You don't have to be, you don't have to continue the cycle. I don't know what's going on in your life, but it doesn't have to continue. You can change. And you coming to me at this age tells me you want change in your life. But you need the change you want in your life. You have to be that change. You have to initiate it. You have to do that. You have to reach out there. And it's not comfortable. He brought me in his class. I had all eight periods was in his classroom. He had that much pull in school that he's able to do that. Yeah. He also was the guy who took everybody to um, uh, New York and Pennsylvania for the Civil War um, trip. Right. You remember those trips in school? Yeah, yeah. Right. So they, he actually let me go. He paid for it. And I went with him and I fell in love. I can tell you everything about civil war. I fell in love with civil war. That's I fell so in love cool. with history. Um, and, um, he, he was, he was the one, he was, a, and that's why I really stoked that my son and my wife are teachers. I said, cause I really teachers can really make an impact on people. Like, cause you actually have that kid sometimes longer than I've told my son, Billy, the son gave me once again, structure. Cause I had rules in his class. He couldn't break them. If I broke them, they were going to be, de- it was going to be devastating for me. But the bottom line, when I graduated, I was, I had like a straight A student in his class. I've never had straight A's in anything in my life, you know, never. 
it was to this day still it was because that next year i only went to poly in ninth grade and i never went to school again yeah but no he was um so it's lots of, if you're out there listening to me man <laughs> i love you and thank you a lot of my friends we know me he was he was hard nose yeah but, uh, he was he was the one that told me look no one's gonna do it for you you have to do yourself the world doesn't care about you billy no one cares you problems people don't care mm-hmm you're going to find people who are going to be empathetic to you. Yeah. But truly no one cares. Yeah. You know, now like companies are almost monetizing the victimhood mentality. Yeah. You know, it's sad to see that. And then and that's basically what he was telling me too. You're, you, you are a victim of your circumstances, but you're continuing to victimize yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you have, and you have to stop it. Yeah. Yeah, it only takes one generation to change everything. Him and I have reconnected after I got out. He's met my wife and stuff, and it's been it's pretty pretty. Cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah. Well, um, we're at two hours and nineteen minutes right now. Right. Pretty cool. Well, I appreciate it, man. Yeah, I, that was I enjoyed awesome, it. That was an awesome episode. All the listeners out there, if you want to uh, make some good money, there's a whole bunch of trades out there that you can get into. Absolutely, give it a try. If you don't like it, then all right, move on to something else, but give it a try. You don't know what you don't like. So you have any final words or? Uh, no, I just want to thank you for that. And, and what you're saying is true, you know, uh, and it, no matter what, every job I've ever done in the past, yeah. I tried to do, do, I tried to do work that I tried to do. And even if I didn't like it, I would do something. No matter what, that job that I did later on in my life still helped me in a situation or in my future jobs I've had. So they all, it's, it's, I think it's a job is always an opportunity, you know? So and there's yeah. a lot of opportunities out there. That's great. Um, is your company hiring? You said Absolutely they need hiring drivers. Right we need drivers. We need operators. We need uh, people in the offices. We need, you know, we're always hiring. So if you're out there and you're listening and you're in this, in the desert area of, of, um, Southern California, the Mojave Desert, Palmdale, Lancaster, um, Barstow, Victorville, um, Sperria, Lucerne Valley, the Morongo Basin, the Coachella Valley, go on to High Grade website, look it up. Um, you can even put my name down, Billy Weaver, as a reference. Um, my phone number is always on there. You can contact me. And uh, yeah, we got a good opportunity. We have uh, great benefits. We have 401k and it's been, yeah, there's a lot of opportunities. All right. That's great. Thanks again, Billy. Thank you.